Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and I'm here today with the Friday Conversation with a bunch of friends. Some, uh, it's very exciting to be here tonight with all of you. So, Jimmy, you want to kick us off with some introductions? M me? You want me to do just my own introduction? <laughs> we're, we're going, we're going uh, clockwise. Okay. okay. I thought you meant like introduce everybody like I you was doing. Sure. Yeah, go, go, can... go ahead, Jimmy. I, got so <laughs> I would like actually Jimmy to introduce us all. I love his yeah. smooth voice. Yeah. I, I am. Okay. I'll try. Yeah, dude, go about your DJ. <laughs> well, our gracious host tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is Steve Talks Books, who is uh, one of my favorite people for long form conversation to watch on the booktube sphere, YouTube sphere, whatever we want to call it. And uh, next to me up here, I have the wonderful Joanna. Hello. And we also are accompanied by the freshly into his fifth decade, Philip Chase. Dr. Philip Chase, I apologize. Doctor. He gets very <laughs> testy about this. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. Yes, I insist. Yeah. And then we are all humbled by the presence of one of the greatest of all time, the Mount Rushmore of epic fantasy absolutely a placeholder there and that is the one and the only steven erickson hello <laughs> well asked for it. and i'm jimmy nuts <laughs> mr erickson was that the first time you've ever been introduced with the wrestlemania voice let me think about that yeah probably <laughs> <laughs> that was a great introduction thank you jimmy so yeah, thank you. Yes, good thank, stuff. You. thank you for having me do it. Yeah, you, you set the bar way too high for me, so that's that's no good. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Stephen, I wanted to ask you. Right, we were just talking. I was just talking with a friend of mine, Katarina, and she's a fan of of the series, and she wanted me to ask you about characters. Mm -hmm. And she mm -hmm. was talking about how complex some characters are. Some characters are very complex and three dimensional, and there's some characters when they're. It seems like you either want us to love them or hate them. Is there, is there a, a method to the madness? Are there certain characters that you just don't take the time to flesh out as much? Or is there is there a reason that you want us to enjoy or, or not enjoy some characters? That's a, no, I don't. Hmm. I'm not sure if, if I have any sort of intention of directing the reader uh, to make a decision or a judgment call on a character. Um, oddly enough, and I'm really experiencing this now because I'm writing uh, Life is... No Life Forsaken, and I'm introducing a lot of new characters. Surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> and they come, they arrive, and as soon as I start writing them, I realize they are as complex as any character uh, I've ever ever created. And so I think they're, they're all like that. And then it becomes a question of, well, how much of that character do I want to lay out on the page? Um, and how, you know, I guess one tries then to think, well, how relevant and how important uh, are they going to be to the story? And sometimes as, as the writer, you don't know how important they're going to become. Um, so based on that past experience, I give them all the room that I can, I can possibly give them um, and, and see where that takes me. Uh, and so characters, I mean, there's a couple of characters I've just done that really surprised me where they ended up and um, ended up in the sense of uh, pushing their way into the narrative and into the plot uh, in a much broader and more forceful way than I anticipated. So as soon as the, you know, sometimes I don't have to name the character, but as, if somebody sort of shows up, um, 
as long as I give them the space uh, that they need, um, they'll sort of decide uh, almost uh, for me whether whether or not they're going to be relevant to the story, or whether you know there's something about that character that's um, that, that it's just intriguing enough that I know that I'm going to come back to them, or I have the potential of coming back to them. So I don't know if that answers the question or not, but it's not a question of really sort of uh, building a character to uh, manipulate the reader in any sense. Uh, the character is one, I, I try to think in terms of the character as a whole individual. And so there's, there's qualities, there, there's virtues, there's flaws, there's, there's everything there. Um, and then the story and the scene that I'm describing determines how much of that is going to show up on, you know, in the book. But it's all there. It all just sort of fills fills all the empty spaces. Would there be an example of that perhaps in The God is Not Willing with a character who originally appeared in House of Chains as a very minor character? Uh, I'm not going to say who, but it was yeah. where you had to sort of, I think, ask uh, some of your fans, uh, wait, is this character alive or not? Yeah, I couldn't remember where I'd left him. Uh, I yeah. really didn't. But, and, you know, there's there's plenty of characters like that in the in the 10 book series where um i've left them to their fates and um in a sense they are a repository of potential uh that i can reach back for uh, if i want to yeah i think so i have a very odd question to add on to that <clears throat> and i love how you name your characters they're among <laughs> my favorites do you start with a name or do you start with the virtues and then build it out from there and think of what's appropriate? It, it varies, but I'd say predominantly I start with the name. Nice. Yeah, I like it. Mm. So I'm actually um, going onto my work laptop here because I'm going to see if I can um, What the hell is that? Isn't that weird when you open up your laptop and you don't recognize anything that's just showing up there? Okay, there we go. Um, Jimmy, talk have you been among, hacking? Talk, talk among yourselves. I'm just going to find something here. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess what I'll say about the characters in this series and what I've been telling people who are interested in reading Laws and Book of the Fallen is that with my own personal experience, and of course, everybody's going to have a different experience with the series, I didn't really think about the series in terms of being attached to characters when I started it. I was just enjoying the experience and I was enjoying the characters, but I wasn't thinking, oh, this is my favorite character or this is my person or this is my person. I wasn't really thinking in those terms necessarily. But then the more I read on in the series, the more I just found myself reflecting back on certain characters and they would stay with me after finishing the book. I think that especially happened with uh, the second book with Deadhouse Gates, where I started thinking back on certain characters and they just started to have a deeper and deeper impact on me, the more and more I thought about it. And then as I read on in the series, I just, I mean, so many characters in this series became like favorite characters for me, so many. And uh, I could say more, but I guess I'll just leave it at that for now that it's interesting because I know there's a lot of talk about how Malazan isn't a character driven series in the typical sense or traditional sense that we think of um, fantasy characters with the found family and the small group of characters you attach to. But I think that the way that you write uh, characters, it just, there were characters I fell in love with within a few paragraphs as I was reading on in the series. 
Uh, do you have any examples? Like, can you name any? Or yeah, any? iron yeah. bars. <laughs> iron bars. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I distinctly remember iron bars. Uh, just reading a couple of paragraphs of dialogue in yeah. book five, and it immediately popped out to me. I love this character. I immediately wow. love this character. But as far as characters earlier on, the ones I'm thinking about the most with Deadhouse Gates are Fellison and Coltane. And I can't give away much because of spoilers, but yeah. uh, just really thinking deeply about what they went through and uh, their journeys and things that they represented in that story deeply stayed with me. Hmm. So some characters, I guess, would I would say were a little bit more of a slow burn than others. But yeah, there were several characters and uh, several female characters, I should add, like Sarah and Pedek, mm. that I just, I felt such uh, a connection to, that I felt kind of seen through in a weird way, even though I haven't experienced what some of those characters went through. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, there's a comment in the chat mm -hmm. um, by Nathaniel Robinson about mm. the... Um, RPGs to think through the stories. And as, as Joanna was talking, I was thinking about the, something similar, actually, how a lot of these characters were scripted, if you will, when you and Ian Esselmont did your gaming. So in a way, they're already very much alive. They're very vivid for you in your mind before they're even on the page in your novels. I, I would guess that that plays a, a, a huge role in, in how developed these characters feel for you as an author yeah I, I think fewer characters were game than you think you know i can probably hmm. name oh i don't know 30 characters maybe okay. maybe 40 hmm. um that's including uh people who are not cam or myself but other people that, that played actually for those that would be one two three four five six characters the rest were me and cam but i think both of us we we kind of um found ourselves naturally angling away um once we've left the history of those particular characters behind that uh, there was a lot more uh, inventing on the fly uh, creating characters specific to the stories we were going to be telling so yeah we did have a question from uh, matt on books uh, who's your favorite character you've ever written and why is it carsa <laughs> well, Carsa, yeah, interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I don't really have favorites. Uh, I know that I have a lot of fun. For example, if I'm writing Iskarl Pus, because it's just fun to write. Um, Crop would be another example. Um, but generally, you just sort of you fall into that character's life as, as you're writing it. And um, that's where you want to be at the time. So that's that becomes your favorite character for that moment. I think it, it's probably the same with every writer. Um, otherwise, you're giving them short shrift. Um, you're not giving them the attention uh, and the respect they deserve. So, um, I mean, Carson's story is the most linear of all the stories. So maybe that's why it is he is such a, a favorite, you know, among readers. I mean, you can see the progression and you see where he begins. Whereas a lot of characters, you're dropped into meeting them for the first time and they're halfway through their lives. And so, you know, there's, there's all that stuff that as the reader, you're not experiencing. Hmm. So maybe that's what makes Carsa so um, 
attractive in that respect. Yeah, we kind of see his not origin per se, but in origin yeah. of Karsa and get to follow that along. And it's and it also stands out because he is very different from most of the other characters in the series, which makes it even more special, I think, for some people. Um, you you talk a lot about like like the characters like having all this um really almost feels like agency that you're giving them that they make these decisions and they kind of lead you um do you have any like if i could drill into that more like do you have any tips for that like for those who do write because i feel like a lot of times uh whether it be other people talking about the writing or whenever i attempt to write a character i always feel like i have to give them some quirk or like little characteristic and then like you know what i mean and then it becomes oh they're the drunk or they're the jokester or they're the badass or whatever it might be is there like a method or a tip that you have to make people feel more real because everything in malazan even the fantastical seems rooted and uh, i think that's an impressive thing right well okay so when you're talking about introducing a character who as you say you know has a, a quirk or a trait are you introducing that character from another point of view or from that character that's a good question uh, because if you're doing it from that character, then that quirk is just a starting point, right? <laughs> and that's a great segue because I'm going to I'm going to read you guys something that um, is in like No Life Forsaken. So it, this is nobody nobody's heard this stuff, and this is basically first draft because I had um, I have a squad, well it's a squad and a half in, in a very remote outpost in, in the Seven Cities. And one of the things that keeps these outposts surviving is um, a regular supply of, of beer and ale. <laughs> and um, yeah. so, and it's all part of the the, uh, the supply train networks that, that are um, servicing the border borders borderlands. So um, this is a scene where I knew I had to get the beer and wine to arrive at the outpost. Um, and I could have stayed with the point of view, all of, any of the point of views that I'd already explored um, within the squads. But I decided not to. Um, one of the reasons is I knew that I'd set it up so that when the beer and ale arrives, there's not enough of it. And there's not enough of it because the, um, the people who are delivering the beer and ale already know the orders that are about to come to these squads before before even the squad knows this is kind of just you know how things work in, in the military um, people know things long before the orders come down and uh, so they're they're actually the better uh, rumor bill or, or information delivery system um, it's actually built into the delivery of, of uh, you know these these carriages full of, um, of ale and, and beer so because I needed to get the squad to get out of their outposts and begin a march and um, so I decided, okay, what I'll do is I'll, I'll take it from the point of view of the, of the people delivering um, at least one, one character, the main character of the train that's delivering the um, beer and ale. And so I had to basically invent the character on the fly. Um, and that's where sort of, that's where ridiculous names can come in very quickly. Uh, they just sort of they pop in. So I, I warn you beforehand. Um, <laughs> The outpost is called uh, the Gila Outpost, as in uh, Gila Monster. Okay, uh, here's the reading. Wagoneer Buttcrow had piles. In fact, he had piles and piles, and the huge pillow on the bench only managed to keep him from screaming with every bump of the wagon. 
He hoped there was a decent healer in the miserable outpost ahead. Not that healing lasted very long, since it was his task to deliver vital supplies to all the outposts on this endless, pointless border, which meant he'd spent most of his past 30 years of his life sitting on this damned wooden bench. No human body was meant for that. Standing, walking, running, lying down. These were healthy positions. Sitting? Sitting was a curse, invented by a cruel, spiteful, malevolent demon god with a vicious sense of humor. Or a terminal case of piles. He wanted to find that demon god. He wanted to kill it slowly, gleefully. That wasn't too much to ask of the universe, was it? Gila outpost, Buttcrow squinted. And that was another thing, this lifetime of squinting that had made the rest of his face look like an apple left on a shelf for 10 years. And he began altering his idea of the place. Since it was walled and it had outbuildings and the main building, barring the huge hole in one wall, was looking rather fancy. Typical of Marines to find a spiffy ruin to squat in. Nice cool chambers, feet up on desks and whatnot, living the easy life like they was royalty or something. But oh, they'd been getting thirsty. How else to explain them crowding the gate and all the big smiles on their ugly faces? Aye, beer and wine, vital supplies. But wait until they saw what they were about to see. And was there any doubt that they'd blame Buttcrow? But it wasn't Buttcrow's fault, was it? Would the healer even fix him up? Who could tell how snarky they'd be? Now he was rolling up, and they were wondering at how small this train was. Three wagons? Where the fuck are the other two? Well, Buttcrow was nothing if not efficient and practical. It's Buttcrow, one of the Marines said. Hey, Pruneface, how's the piles? At least I'm sitting on mine, Buttcrow replied. And it's not like you can hide your face, is it? The train's short. Buttcrow guided the mules through the gate, pulled the wagon up close to the well, where he set the braking and began climbing down, wincing at every move. The Marines gathered round. Ain't short, he said, knocking the bucket sitting on the edge of the well into the hole, pleased at hearing a soft splash from below. He began cranking the bucket back up. This better be cold, he said, and clean. But if just one, then cold will do. It's all short, somebody cries. The bucket reappeared and Buck Crow pulled it over, lifted it to drink down two mouthfuls of well water. Huh, cold and clean. Damn Marines always had it good, didn't they? He set the bucket on the ground, pulled down his britches, and sat, pushing his backside into the bucket and feeling that blessed cold, clean water rising up around it. Tight squeeze, but he managed. Now we gotta burn that bucket, one of the Marines said. <laughs> Ask if I care, Buttcrow responded, closing his eyes and sighing. Anyways, you're on the move in a day or two, and that's why the train's short. A Marine cursed and said, how is it damn Neri Cartier knows that, knows that when we don't? Buttcrow opened his eyes and glared at the man. Because it's people like me supplying you, so of course we find out first. Logistics, right? You want to be overloaded when you're on the march? With wine and beer? Sure, why not? You got wine and beer, just not so much that you can't carry it all. We're Marines. We're supposed, we're, you'd be surprised at what we can carry, Buttcrow. Buttcrow snorted. He'd heard it all before, but really... Who knew better about how things worked? He did, of course. Armies figured they were the reason the Empire survived. They weren't. No, it was people like Buttcrow and Lilypad on the wagon behind him, and Neelock in the wagon behind her. Wagoneers, haulers, cartiers. Why, they were the Empire's lifeblood, damn it. Without them, it all come crashing down. But where was the gratitude? I need healing, he said. And thankfully, the officers had arrived. And it was the captain herself who said, Belan, heal the poor man, will you? I will, sir, once he gets his ass out of that bucket. <laughs> Lone rider, 
coming in, one of the soldiers said. Buck Crow nodded. That'll be your marching orders. Uh, need help here. I'm stuck. So <laughs> that's, um, that's to Jimmy's point. Um, if you're going to have a particular um, quirk or detail about a character that you come up with. So this guy's been sitting on wagon train benches forever. So he's going to have piles. Um, if you're in his point of view, that's your, that's your launching point to other details about his internal life. Yeah. Um, and in terms of another character observing this, we'll only know the external who know Buck Crow's got, got piles. That's about it. But if you're using his point of view, you can then spread your information and drop things out among, you know, in his character's voice, but providing uh, salient points and details, expositional details, but they're all tied into his internal monologue. So, the, so basically the section is doing a whole lot of things, even though it's just tied into that one short point of view. Yeah. And so having finished that, that's probably the last time we're going to see Butt Crow, um, but maybe not because he's there, right? And what I, I know that. what he's doing is he's delivering supplies to various places throughout this part of seven cities. So there's the opportunity for Butt Crow to show up at any time later on in the book if I want him to. So does that make sense? Yeah, and, and it's yeah. like advancing the story too. Yeah. I mean, that that is that's good stuff. I it's like the truckers of Malazan. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, so he, the, the other two names, I mean, Lilypad, um, <laughs> chances are, I, I can picture it in my head, right? You know, she's she's been sitting down way too long as well, right? So <laughs> probably eating all the time. And the other one, knee lock. Well, yeah, the knees will go if you're walking and marching and doing all this kind of stuff. So the names all fit. This this is what kind of sort of what a troop of these these people would be like in terms of their, their mm -hmm. name choices. So I love it. Well, he needed someone to invent uh, preparation age for him or something. I think so. Desperately so, yeah. Well, there's an ongoing debate about the spelling of the character's name in the chat. Uh, I don't know if you want to settle that for us or not. Butt Crow, B-U-T-T-C-R-O-W. That okay. is what people were hoping for. You just made everybody happy. <laughs> someone yeah. said if there are truckers in Malazan, are there also lot lizards? Are there also what? Lot lizards. Lot lizards. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> absolutely fantastic oh man i just want to read more of that story now me too to be honest <laughs> good 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 sign very like very much liked it now i told you he'd be awake what a hose yeah yeah probably all hopped up on red bull <laughs> <laughs> yeah that makes a lot of sense though and i, I just love the fact that you you talked about how it was from Buck Crow's POV. Yeah. So it makes sense that he has these um, this exposition in his thoughts because mm -hmm. he's done this time and time again. And I mean, how many times have we done a task at work that is so mundane? And every time I, you do it, you just think about how much you hate it, and you think about why you hate it, and you think about why do I have to do this? What's the breakdown here? No one appreciates it. Um, when I used to work back in the day in IT, and I worked in help desk. I thought about, I thought that kind of stuff all the time. Without me, this whole place shuts down. So it's relatable. Yes, um, it builds that, out yeah. the scene around him and everything. Yeah, and that, that's the price. Precisely the point is that, from his point of view, he is what's holding the empire together, mm -hmm. right? 
And, and, and that's where, that's in a sense, you're giving the character their life. You're giving them where they are and where they, where they place themselves in, in, in context of everything else around them. And it acts, uh, creates a juxtaposition for, you know, the captain of the squads or the sergeant of the squads or one of the soldiers and, and the roles that they may, the way they see themselves and where they position themselves within the empire is, is going to be very different from this guy who's just delivering beer and ale everywhere. Yeah. So, and that, that, that I, I, to me, that sort of helps do, helps the world building process because you're now peopling the culture with a whole variety of characters rather than one particular set of characters. So just a question there too, in the context of Butt Crow's affliction, um, <laughs> the way Majory works in the Malazan world, is it hands-on healing? <laughs> Um, if somebody is not talented enough, probably. Yeah. Okay, the dental healer can can keep their distance. Then I guess. Yeah, which which is a great incentive to you know become very good at what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, this kind of stuff. This is minor, minor stuff. So I mean, there's there's going to be, you know, creams, whatever, unguents, whatever you want to call them, right? Uh, there's going to be more mundane means of treating these things. Ah. But if, if the guy, if the guy's activity makes him chronic, there's not much you can do. It doesn't matter if you have a, you know, high denial healer, it's not going to matter. Two weeks later, he's going to have him again. Yes. Yeah. Philip, you would know, you can't sit for very long. <laughs> yes. Thank you for pointing that out. <laughs> um, it's because of sciatica though. Not yeah. Well, it's sitting, sitting's horrible. Yeah. yeah. It's bad for you. Everyone sitting is. is really bad. Yeah. I have bad back problems if I sit too much. Yeah. 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 Uh, to that question, uh, Alistair Reynolds, I just finished Alistair Reynolds. Which book did I just finish? Hold on a second. Oh. Is it a version? And for, for those listening, the question was, have you ever, have you read anything by Alistair Reynolds? Revelation space reminds me of Malazan in terms of vast scope and having no single protagonist. Mm. Ooh, inhibitor phase. Yeah, just finished that one a couple days ago. Hmm. Yeah, he's a good writer. That's cool. I'm adding it to my TBR right now. <laughs> I, I do need to thank you for recommending the Culture series. I finally read one. I read The Player of Games by... Oh, wow. Ian Banks and I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, they are so good. Yeah, they're great. I remember you talking about like post scarcity and like what does that look like? We were walking mm -hmm. back from dinner, I think, mm -hmm. and um, you know, just that thought experiment alone yeah. is is interesting. And then Banks really takes it and dives in, yeah. and then obviously in player games, it's not a spoiler to say it. You know, he goes to a different empire who is very mm -hmm. barbaric. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of sounds very similar to how things that we do today and talks about owning stuff and the sense of owning something in a post-scarcity society means absolutely nothing, but in an older style society means everything. Um, and that's just one of the very, you know, many, 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 many examples. But uh, yeah, I thought that it was one of the best science fiction books I've ever read. I really do. Yeah. He's fabulous. It's fabulous. Um, I'd also I would recommend Alistair Reynolds and Peter Hamilton as well. Uh, mm -hmm. They write in, in sort of the same um, grand sort of visions uh, in terms of their, the universe they create. It's good stuff. Let's check it out. Peter Hamilton. 
And uh, Stephen, was there ever a was there a book in your from your childhood or your early years that really had an impact on you that kind of set you on the path to to start writing? A uh, book that set me on the path to writing. Um, Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, I can't, I mean, if I think back to when I'm 12 and 13 and I'm reading Burroughs and Howard and people like that. Um, but they, I was not thinking I was ever going to be a writer at that point. That didn't really kick in until my 20s, I would say. Wow. Um, so now I'm trying to think back, what was I reading in my 20s that got me going? I would have to say Donaldson's Lord Fowlsbane hmm. is the one that really, um, yeah, made me ambitious in, in, in the sense of, of what I was seeing uh, that he was exploring there. Um, and I guess for me, it it, it coincided with, with my sense of uh, growing out of uh, my adolescence. And it seemed that that one novel took a lot of epic fantasy and, and pulled it out of its adolescence into adulthood. Mm -hmm. And so the timing was, I guess, you know, propitious in that respect. So it's fair to say that the Thomas Covenant books, you, you looked at those and said, huh, uh, I think you can do some pretty cool stuff with this genre. Is that, is that kind of. Weird? Yeah. But also um, just the, the style in which it's written, the voice in which it's written. It's so, um, I mean, I, I pulled out a dictionary, you know, when I was reading those books because there's a lot of Latinate stuff going on there um, that I find really fascinating. And, um, but yeah, it just, it just felt, yeah, it's, it's adult themes. It's, you know, right from the start, right from the get-go um, and very evocative. Uh, you know, to present as your protagonist, um, not only somebody who's suffering from leprosy, but who is also um, emotionally traumatized and shut down. Mm -hmm. um, and then he is, just as the reader, he's thrust into a world of, of, of the fantastic. And the question is, you know, does, does he accept the, the reality of it? Um, or does he reject it out of hand as simply fantasy? And so mm -hmm. those kind of questions, those are meta questions. And, and yet they're part of the story and they're tied in with the character. And I thought, wow, this is this is heady stuff. This is um, very, very well thought out. Very mm -hmm. interesting. I did have a question from uh, from Paul. Has Steve read any? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah. I've read some. Yeah. And I think I've met him, actually. Pretty sure hmm. he came to ICFA one time. AP, you can you can verify that or not. <laughs> if he hasn't fallen asleep yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've, I've read early Neil Stevenson, uh, not his later stuff. Um, in fact, is there one called Fall? The Fall? Is that his latest? Is that a big one of his? Hmm. Let me know, uh, Severin. I think so. Yeah? I think. I might I might be wrong, though yeah let's see i started it i've got it in hardcover um but i got i got this is going to sound weird it, it's a science fiction novel. i'm sure let me let me go check yeah fall or dodge in hell i think that's what it's called 
just hearing Thomas Covenant in that perspective makes me want to read it again. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, read Thomas Covenant. Yeah. Yeah. I think one thing that's clear is that uh, Stephen Donaldson is a writer who approaches his stories from the perspective of, of theme and is very aware, I think, I, I would guess, I mean, I, I haven't asked him, but I would guess that he's very aware of what he wants to accomplish with that story um, and, and probably begins with a, a premise of a sort, wanting to work on a, a particular theme. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I would guess that he built his story around that first, but I don't know what yeah. you would say to that, Mr. Erickson. Um. Yeah, I mean, it certainly was a conscious, and he's described this as, as a dialogue established with, with Tolkien. Uh -huh. But, you know, having met him um, and getting some of his own personal backstory, you know, it, that ties in very deeply in, in, into, into what, what the trilogy is about. Um, yeah. So that, that sort of added a whole new layer on things. And, and mind you, I didn't meet him until after Gardens of the Moon um, came out. Mm -hmm. So that was long after the first two trilogies. Yeah, I have Fall. I don't think I've read it yet. It's got dust on it, so I don't think I've read it yet. <laughs> <laughs> and in regard to Stephen Donaldson, too, he's, he's written essays, uh, which are really fantastic, yeah. uh, which I think we're all here aware of, but that, uh, that really should be read more, honestly, mm -hmm. uh, where he kind of declares, this is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. fantasy when he calls it the the literature of reintegration right yeah. hmm. so and he brings up the malazan book of the fallen as yeah, exactly. uh, what he's what he's talking about yeah. so yeah. do you think that most fantasy succeeds in that or do you think just so select types of fantasy succeed in that it succeeds in terms of reintegration mm -hmm. um i think so but i think the way Donaldson describes reintegration, he describes it in uh, in a positive aspect, a rewarding aspect, a fulfilling aspect. I think it may be the case that with some of the more modern grimdark, that reintegration is actually almost more depressing uh, by its <laughs> nature um, because it's inviting almost to embrace the nihilistic uh, fictional world and then mm. carry that back into our world and that's that sounds pretty grim in its, yeah. own, in its own right that um, sounds kind of similar to what jenny Wirtz was saying in your live show last week steve yeah. right about uh how if you end with hopelessness mm -hmm. that that's not where you really want your story to end ideally i mean that ideally hmm. yeah I, i'm on the same page as jenny with that one absolutely that is a, a really interesting thing to hear because I just finished um, R. Scott Baker's Second Apocalypse. I read the sequel, Quartet, and um, I definitely was left in a pit of <laughs> hopelessness at the end of the yeah. Aspect Emperor. It did make me think a lot. And actually, it brought up something that we had discussed and in, uh, in whenever you came on Chatting with Nuts and you recommended the Julian James book, I believe, by Cameron oh, yes. Yeah, he kind of plays with that in yeah, the second series. And I thought it was really fascinating. And like I was able to identify because you mentioned it. I have the book and then I watched some videos on it mm -hmm. and I plan to read it this year. But I, as I'm reading through it, I'm like, wait, 
is that what this is? Like, is, is this something that's being played with here? And uh, it just brought me back to when we, when we discussed it. Um, and then that trips you out. And then, uh, you know, the bleakness of it and everything. I, I had never really thought about that, though, like being left with hopelessness and taking that back with you into the I never thought of that into our world. I mean, that's the thing with 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 stories is that you do take something back. You know, when you close the book, you you you're left with something. And then it, mm -hmm. it's it's down to you, I guess, to decide um, is that something you want to wear or is that something you want to discard? Mm. Hmm. Yeah, that kind of relates to a question I had for Philip, because Philip, you've been saying a lot on your channel recently, you are what you read. And oh. uh, I was wondering if you could expand upon that. And I think it's perfect to expand upon that in the presence of Steven Erickson, because... Obviously, you just reread the series, the Malazan Book of the Fallen, as well as all the other Malazan books. Yeah. And uh, I think, would you say that has something to do with your thoughts on that? You are what you read. And yeah, just if you could expand upon that. Wow. Okay. I'll try. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Pressure's on. My mind. Feel free, any of you, to to interrupt me or, or, or contribute. But yeah, I... I I, that's sort of a catchy phrase, I guess, that I use with my guests <laughs> on Dear Doctor Fantasy to get across the notion that, um, you know, all the stories that we've encountered, that we have listened to, that we've read, and, and it, you know, they become part of us in some way or other, that um, we walk around with these stories in our minds, and they nudge us in certain directions, I think. it's I, I believe that. And it's not that you're, you know, going to be completely transformed. Um, I'm not going to be able to access Warren's after reading the Malazan Book of the Fallen, alas. Uh, but, yeah. sorry, Jimmy. <laughs> Jeez, news to me. Yeah, what a ripoff, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, I, I really do believe that, uh, you know, we, we become influenced by the stories that we engage with. And if I'm using the Malazan Book of the Fallen as an example, and I'm talking right in front of the author so <laughs> it's a little little uh, nerve-wracking but i don't mm -hmm. mind at all because it's it's something that i'm very very open about the fact that i believe that um that's a series where for me we we were just talking a moment ago about the idea of reintegration and, and stephen donaldson's concept and for me it is a series where I feel that there are so many, and I, I figured out too, that this is where, uh, Mr. Erickson, this is where you make me cry a lot. Uh, it's actually in the moments of, of, uh, of characters reuniting or connecting. And those are the ones that really get me. Um, and I think that there's, there's this sort of running thing in, in the series, because it happens a lot uh, mm -hmm. where, where characters are brought together, where they, they experience this incredible connection with each other and that is something that i carry with me in my life uh because i do believe that uh, empathy and compassion are very important <laughs> and that I, I want to be um a compassionate person and so i i, I do think it has uh, an effect um when you engage with stories that emphasize such things it has an effect on you in the way that you engage with other people. So, uh, but yeah, I, I really do think that um, we are influenced by it. So it's important to, to select stories that we, we feel like if you, 
that will nudge us in the directions we want to be nudged in too, I suppose, but also to be challenged and, and other things too. But, but yeah, so I don't know if I, I just gave you a very jumbled answer there. I'm, yeah. And I'm so sorry to put you on the spot. Oh, no, that's okay. it, nah, he needs it. You beautifully oh, yeah. answered the question. I just, it's, it's something that I honestly have been thinking about ever since hearing you bring that up because yeah. um, I think I actually have been thinking about it before that too, because last year I spent, especially the second half of the year, just really concentrating on finishing the 10 book series. And that took over the majority of my reading life. Like I, all I read in December was The Crippled God. And unlike some people like Jimmy, <laughs> I, it takes me forever to read a book. So, <laughs> so it took me a long time, but it also, I think took me, gave me a lot of time to process what I was reading too. Um, so maybe there's some benefit there. But yeah. after finishing the series, uh, I, you know, it was interesting because I got, when I got to the halfway point, I had finished my reread of the Lord of the Rings. And I was kind of where you were, Philip. And I was thinking, wow, the Lord of the Rings, this is the most amazing, beautiful experience ever. How can any series top this? And then by the time I got to the end of the crippled God, I just felt like I was soaring. And I think that part of that too had to be the fact that I felt like I lived in that your series um, for so long. I felt like I lived in it for a good part of the year where my consciousness was constantly on the page. And so to come out of that, and every time I even closed a Malazan book, I felt like, like I'm coming out of a cave or something. Um, there's no way that couldn't not change me or yeah. affect my consciousness in some way. And uh, I think it did to, in the sense that I, I mentioned this recently that I ha I've read a few more nonfiction books this year than I have in recent years. And every nonfiction book I, I've read this year, I thought, this reminds me of Malazan, or this <laughs> reminds me of Malazan. And I was just seeing how so many themes kind of tied into my real life. And for me, I know that um, uh, I have not read the Thomas Covenant series yet. I do want to. Um, but I don't think that there are very many fantasy series that I can say have affected me on that level where I feel like, oh, I feel this in my real life, like mm -hmm. <laughs> everywhere I look. Um, so I just think that that says something special about that, the Malazan Book of the Fallen and my experience with it, but also probably says something about uh, the rewards of taking on something of that scope and that length. And I'm sure, I know, Jimmy, you've been reading a lot of Baker this year. So I'm sure you're having some experiences with that too, just taking in a larger series and these large ideas in a, in a deep way. You too, Steve. I know you're into that series as well. But it's either one of you if you want to speak to that as well. Well, so, I mean, I'm a pretty depressed person in general. So, like, there are pieces <laughs> of it that, like, I'm like, yeah, man, the world sucks. But, <laughs> I, I mean, to be honest, uh, you know, Philip, you're saying you are what you read, but I find myself arguing with Baker at times. Yeah, good, page. good. And for me, uh, that's actually very rewarding. Like, I, I think that, that that dialogue that's there, first off, I think it kind of speaks to the fact that there's like depth to the work that I can sit there and have those arguments without him in the room. Um, but at the same time, it just feels like um, like you need that. Like you need to read something that doesn't necessarily agree with you. And honestly, I would have considered myself pretty nihilistic at, at one point. Uh, and now I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'm not so sure now because I'm seeing some of these ideas come to um, to pass. And 
uh, it is fascinating. And I do think that it's, you know, very well done. Um, but I, I guess I, I totally agree with what you're saying, but I also think it's really important to read the other side of that and stuff that you really disagree with. Uh, wheel of time is another series. I very much disagree with on a lot of the things that come across, whether it's the execution or the, or the actual point of it, uh, doesn't really matter. Um, but I think like that's the other side of the, the, the coin, right? That's very, very important. Um, but I read Realm of the Elderlings and Malazan back to back and talk about two series that went home with me. Um, you know, I learned a lot about processing guilt and grief through Realm of the Elderlings. Robin Hobb like touched my soul in a way that not a lot of other authors can do. And then going into that, Joanna, you're kind of like, yeah, like you said, with Lord of the Rings, like nothing can ever affect me like this. <laughs> and Malazan did. Um, yeah. And I found that the most powerful moments were, um, and this is the stuff that I took away, is uh, the passion, uh, compassion and empathy. We always talk about that, but there's also forgiveness. Yeah. And uh, and this is a very odd uh, kind of related topic. But like, have you guys ever watched someone in a court setting, like a real video, and someone has been murdered, like a son, and the father or mother forgives the person? It is the most powerful thing you will ever see in your entire – I don't care who you are. Like, mm -hmm. I, it moves me, even just saying it now, thinking about – and, like, it felt that – heavy for me yeah. at points when the compassion was shown so yeah it becomes kind of like you know people say oh passion empathy we got it but like to experience it and to feel it there's like a power behind that um and a vulnerability that i wanted to take away from the text and and carry with me and apply it in my life um which is one of the main examples i reach for whenever people say well like oh you read fiction you don't get anything from fiction especially fantasy like that's one of the first things i reach for um so i think that did i say the right i can't remember beautifully said yeah yeah yeah. Beautiful yeah. Jimmy, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i would say that even in Molas and book of the fallen there were even parts that got me to look at parts of myself that i did not feel comfortable with that i was facing yeah. and uh so there's that side of it too but i love what you said jimmy that you found yourself kind of even arguing with parts of baker's writing or mm -hmm. some of the hopelessness because i think that's something well i know that ap who's in the chat i think still um ap and philip often talk about the binary bias that's explored in laws and book of the fallen uh just mm -hmm. how because you believe in one side of things doesn't make the other right or you know we're looking at binary bias in so many different ways in the series uh, or even questioning what virtue is in so many different ways too. And uh, geez, I forgot what I was going to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think that, um, hmm, I forgot what I was talking about. The binary. The binary nice. bias, yeah. Um, trying to think of what I was, where I was going to go with that. It's okay. Well, we, we can go back to it, but I am curious to ask Mr. Erickson if uh, you have us all. Oh, it looks like Johnny, you thought of it. I, I was on the edge of it. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. We'll come. We'll come back to no, it. Come back. Come back to me. I'll come. Okay. I'll get. I'll get there. I am curious to ask Mr. Erickson. So we're talking here about how what an impact your series has had on us, and how we believe that it's changed us as human beings. Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night and say to yourself, "Oh my God, I'm I'm responsible for." Uh, changing all these people or, or anything like that? Or do, do you feel any responsibility as an author to write books that, I guess, uh, 
nudge people in certain directions or, or are you more interested in exploring or, or what's, what's your take on that? Um, I don't know if I'm, I'm not nudging in, in, in ideological sense. At least I, I certainly try not to. Um, but you may end up as a reader nudged uh, into a place where you're thinking about something that you may not have thought about before. Um, or you're seeing something that you thought in terms of your own judgment on that particular thing, uh, everything was settled. And then you're seeing it from an angle or a perspective that um, shakes that up a little bit. Um, That's it. But I think this is more, this is more um, part of the actual creative process, at least for myself. Um, if I sense something that is personally uncomfortable or something that is I'm undecided on, hmm. that's like a lodestone to me as a writer. I go straight for it. Hmm. Um, and so I have, you know, the writing is taking me through the process. Um, oh. And my hope is uh, that in a way, my exploration of that um whatever particular scene theme or whatever um is kind of like guiding the reader to accompany me in in a safe fashion because this is all fiction it's all removed once mm -hmm. removed or twice removed um and then arriving at the place and, and releasing the reader's hand uh to to decide um what they're going to take from that. And I think thinking back on it, um, Philip, when you were mentioning the reunion aspects um, that you yeah. read in yeah. uh, the series, I got, I got that from, from Donaldson as well. Um, yeah. You know, there's, there, there are whole elements of those stories where the major characters, the two main characters, uh, Lyndon and uh, Covenant uh, are divided, are separated. And Donaldson does a lot of, splitting them to the two apart and then bringing them back together. And in a sense, what he's doing in the fictional world, he's inviting for the reader, right? That idea of, of reintegration right there on the page. Yeah. Uh, you know, two strong thematic threads or two storylines. Um, and then those storylines pick up the baggage of the experience of what they've gone through. And then when they come together, there's almost a synthesis that's occurring on the page. And then it's tied to the alternate's points of view. You'll get it from Lyndon's point of view, and then you get it from Covenant's point of view. But as the series progresses, Covenant becomes more, becomes less of a point of view because he is, he is in a sense, ascending as he goes. Whereas wow. Lyndon is our, uh, the character that is grounded and um, we stay with a lot. So we're actually seeing on the page the benefits and the experience of integration uh, within the story itself, as, as AP would say, within the diegesis, it's right sit, sitting right there. Yeah. And I think I took that with me um, in writing the Malazan stuff, which is why you get that kind of unification stuff um, occurring uh, to put reintegration on the on the page right in front of you. Um, but it's not just it's not just in those instances of. of um, 
groups or people coming together, having been apart for a long time, it is also for me, themes and ideas that may appear to be very, very distinct and separate for, from each other, mm. and then integrating them or attempting to, uh, by virtue of, you know, how the story is built and how the plot uh, converges towards the end of the story. Yeah, actually, that kind of, uh, that does relate to what I, where I was trying to go <laughs> with what I was trying to say earlier. Um, and I'll just kind of backtrack by going a little personal here. Before reading the series a few years ago, well, I, I guess several years ago now, I went through a really difficult time in my life as we all go through difficult times at times. And it was a very, um, it was a time when I went really, really deep into introspection, into meditation, and faced a lot of uncomfortable things about myself in a way that I had never done before. And during that time, what I started to uncover was that so many things that I wanted to believe about myself, I'm a good person, I'm an altruistic person, I care about people, I'm an empathetic person, I could see the opposite of too. I could see places where I was also selfish, where I was also uh, unkind or hard you know, all the opposites of what I wanted to be. And at the same time, because I was giving myself space to see and witness all those things, it was a sort of safe space to, to mm. be with those qualities and to open to them and to explore them. And in that way, integrate, I guess, with them. And reading the series brought back so much of that for me. And I guess that's where I was going with the binary bias is I felt like, oh, wow, this is like just like exploring all those qualities. It's so easy to have empathy for people who are vulnerable or for people who display empathy. But it's so much harder to display empathy for people who are seemingly unempathetic. And I felt like that the series really got me to face some things like that, uh, some difficult things that some difficult places, I think, in humanity where it's challenging to look at. But like you said, it, it created also a gateway, a safe space to explore these things and sort of land or not land, I guess, but sort of suspend in the openness and hope for it, too. Hmm. Wow, That's beautifully said, Joanna. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I got there eventually. Yeah, it was worth the wait. <laughs> Our friend P.L. Stewart uh, had a question. If, if you can disclose, uh, with such an expansive universe, options for Malazan books seem endless. Will we see any standalones focused on Malazan characters as opposed to series? Mm, no, not for me. Um, there are two more Bokalan and Cobra Brooch novellas I'm, I'm under contract for, and that will be that will fill that that space. Um, but no, that that the question actually points to the opposite of the intention of the series. It's never about one person. Mm -hmm. So why would I focus on one person? Um, but going back to what Joanna said, um, what you described there in, in a sense of uh, via meditation and introspection, um, discovering sort of the, the flip side of the virtues, the flaws within oneself. Mm. Um, that is an integrating process in and of itself, isn't it? And hmm. it's from that that wisdom arises when you recognize that it, it's not just 
not only is it is it a self-generated story about your own infallibility that we often operate under but once that becomes dismantled what you put back together again is much more rounded much more humble and and um much more solid in its own way because it's a, it's a self-recognition of um the good and uh, the bad and the good and how these two are actually closely intertwined and hmm. so for me that's that's an integrating process right there um and in the fiction um i think that's being played out all over the place um and certainly in the malazan stuff um i'm conscious of that kind of thing of um and and not for the simple purpose of sort of rounding out characters or rounding out um the readers sensibilities regarding those characters it, it's it's more a case of you have to get to that point like the point you've reached now joanna in your life where the first question is having seen all of these other um, instances of judgment laid upon uh, other people the courtroom of the parent and and witnessing the forgiving is that from that point on it begins with recognizing that you can give up forgive others but then you have to you actually have to go back and forgive yourself right. and once that happens then everything else actually gets a lot easier and from every other side uh, that was my my life experience in, in, in writing the malaise and stuff um, by venturing into uh, characters who were in a bad place um, whether through their own actions or through external external forces acting upon them um, eventually for each of them I had to reach a point of forgiveness um, for their actions and I tried really hard to sort of hinted that all the way through in, in terms of some very, very despicable characters and some, in a sense, I could not reconcile like Bidethal, for example. So because I could not reconcile and could not forgive, um, Karsa steps in for me and, and does the deed. Oh, dear. So, you know, it's, it's Take the matters in hand. Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah. And, and those are, those are my limits. Those are my limitations of, of how far I can, I can go in terms of forgiveness. Hmm. but it's an exercise in, in pushing those limits hmm. um, to write characters like that and to describe horrendous scenes as well. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a really live, like a true living relationship between you and the character. Cause like earlier you said, like the character grows, you know, and then also you as the author of that character is growing. It's really yeah. amazing. Well, and I kind of like that you said that too, about Carsa taking that matter on because it's authentic to where you are in that moment. Yeah. Just being, recognizing where you're at with yeah. not being able to forgive. Yeah, there's no way I could write yeah. write myself out of um, <clears throat> the judgment I laid upon uh, Bidethal for his actions. Yeah. I couldn't do it. And so he was a stand-in for the argument on cultural relativism, moral relativism, uh, relating mm -hmm. to cultural traditional practices um, throughout our world. And it's one of those issues where I simply cannot, um, in good conscience, um, I cannot, I actually cannot um, place myself in a position where 
I can with, uh, suspend or withhold judgment on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If that's my failing, failing, then so be it. But you mm-hmm. know, I, I did my best uh, with Bitathol, so couldn't do it. Another yeah. aspect of that that I think you explore a lot in the series is the idea of redemption. And you know, when how does one redeem oneself? Are there acts for which you cannot be redeemed? Um, you know, there's there, and I don't think you ever ever say, you know, here's the answer to this question. It's more mm-hmm. putting it out there for us to really have to ponder. And- yeah, and, and it Cobian became the extreme uh, response to that. Yeah. <clears throat> hmm. um, but I would argue that his response is actually deeply flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I explored in Toll the Hounds for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I know it's quoted quite often, you know, when he talks about uh, forgiveness. Um, uh, I think it's forgiveness or is, is it redemption? I can't remember. Anyways, it's 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 a quote that's used. It's taken out a lot uh, right. from, his, from his commentary. Well, there's mm-hmm. also absolution and yeah. redemption, and that's mm-hmm. another thing you explore in yeah. Twelve Pounds a lot. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And in that way, because I knew, and there's AP saying the same thing. <laughs> I, I was returning to Darujistan, so that's the opportunity to then revisit the the earlier themes of of the series. Yeah. Uh, the Unicorns Reed had a question. How do you deal with the emotional fallout of writing those at times challenging scenes? Yeah. Well, the process of writing for me is, is um, it doesn't quite purge it, but it gets me to a place where um, the dust can settle and, and you know, the wounds can close and the scabs can form and all the rest. Um, and that, to me, that's that—that that was the purpose of, of writing it in the first place, is, is to get to that place. And the hope is always that the reader can come to that place as well, hmm. uh, knowing that that's not always the case. Um, you know, some things are, uh, for personal reasons, just one step too far, and that's fair enough. Right? Yeah. It strikes me too how much self-exploration a writer must do (laughs) when writing the sort of thing that you're doing. And and even I think sometimes when you're creating characters, you're exploring little facets of yourself in some way. Um, And then this very personal exploration gets put out in the world and so many other people engage with it and have their own personal baggage experiences that they bring to these, these zines as well. So it's, it's really interesting how the personal becomes this this dialogue with all kinds of people yeah it is a dialogue it's always i mean i, I remember sort of in the writing programs uh fellow young writers showing up and saying they only write for themselves and mm-hmm. in my head I, w- I would quietly well i would never say it out loud but basically my response was something along the lines of if you write for yourself what are you doing in this workshop and why are you showing anybody your work just stick it up on a shelf and go on to the next one. Because it, it, it struck me as, so, uh, well, it's diffident. There's a self-defense mechanism involved there. And as young writers, you know, in a program like that, you are very vulnerable and, um, mm-hmm. and you feel it uh, every moment, uh, especially in workshops. So there is a natural tendency to uh, raise up sort of rationalizations that, that, 
make the opinions and judgments of others immune or uh, make you immune to those things because mm. uh, you got to you got to toughen your skin up and, and um but it's fundamentally it's not true i mean writing is communication and so if there's a communication you, there is a presumed audience and if there's a presumed audience then you know as in any conversation there is a level of responsibility uh, adhering to both uh, people in that conversation Mm. And so that, to me, is something I always wanted to be really conscious of, that uh, I have a responsibility to, to the reader um, who's going to follow me on this journey. And, and one of the ways I try to play that out was, you know, if you're going to stay with me for 800 pages or 1,000 pages, I, I will do my best to deliver the payoff mm. at the end of the book. Um, you do that quite well. Yeah, <laughs> and, and for the series as well. I mean, if you're going to stay with me for, you know, three, three and a half million words. Um, yeah, I'll do what I can. Mm. Yeah, thanks, AP. I saw the quote, mm -hmm. uh, the uh, in abundance one. Yeah. Oh, compassion is priceless in the truest sense of the word. It must be given freely in abundance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a problematic statement. I, I would actually suggest that that's not the case, but hmm. you know, it, it's a thing to be explored and thought about. So he was the extreme, basically saying, you know, there's um, re redemption or whatever is sits outside of uh, the human context of morality and ethics. And I would argue that's probably not the case, but he argues the extreme. So. Hmm. <laughs> Had a question from uh, no disclaimer uh, wanted to know your overall thoughts on the discourse surrounding the grimdark as a subgenre and it's seemingly seemingly muddled classification we tend to circle around well it, it's very much a um almost a modern uh, redefinition of grimdark um you could look at robert e howard as, as a very early example of grimdark um and if you do then you know, read a biography about him as well, and you'll get the, the fuller context of his approach to to his, his stories um, and how his his worldview and the difficulties um, that he experienced in his real life um, were playing out in his fantasy settings. So, I mean, Grimdark's been around for a long time, um, just not called Grim, Grimdark. Um, I really don't, I mean, I, I basically, I'm not reading fantasy these days anyways. Um, I wonder if, has anybody spoken of Grimdark with respect to science fiction? I don't think so. I'm not I sure. Heard it a little bit. To my mind, there's plenty of science fiction that would fall under the category of um, a fairly nihilistic um, maybe even occasionally graphically overindulgent um, violence uh, within a science fiction setting um, that for me would fall under the, the, the same uh, category of, of the fantasy grimdark we're looking at. Um, I know Backer did uh, a science fiction novel about... Um, Neuropath. Oh, that was one where I needed about 50 showers after that thing, because that was... <laughs> That was so grim. That was so dark in its in its outlook. Um, yeah. It just clung to me, and, um, and not in a pleasant way. Yeah, so it's certainly not a book I'll ever reread. Um, 
but yeah, he took it to places that, um, yeah, you, you know, one would recoil, I think, from. So one could arguably call that grimdark, hmm. um, but it's science fiction. So I, I, I don't know if, if it, it, I guess, if it's self-identified by the author as, as they're writing grimdark, then they have an idea of what they mean by that. And that's because that's what they're writing. Um, I don't know. I don't really, I don't really have much more to say on that. I, I think I talked about it many years ago. Um, my, my disquiet with it, um, in, in, in its celebration of, um, maybe the, the poorer qualities, um, of our species. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Shelley had a question. Have you ever written a character you realize that you hate him or her? <laughs> no, no. It doesn't matter how despicable they are. Um, with a, with a few caveats. Um, I mean, I, in a sense, I had, for example, Bidithal. I had to, I pushed him into that role. Um, for the purposes of exploring that particular aspect of, of the story. Um, but recognizing that he was as much a product uh, of his environment as uh, the victims that he uh, <laughs> and made made into victims. Um, and in that instance, like, as I said, mentioned earlier, I could not reconcile the two. So um, he suffered a, a grim fate, a grisly fate. And there are other characters for whom that happens. Um, although quite often, well, actually every time, it, it, the final decision, the final judgment and punishment is, is visited, visited um, by other characters. And cool. it should make sense within their context. What about that Apto Cannavale? <laughs> slippery, slippery. Slippery. I mean, yeah. I've tried to kill him in a mul multiple novellas, and he just, <laughs> he just squeezes through somehow and gets through the bars. I don't know. Um, he's bound to show up again at least once in one of these uh, last two Corvo Brochin locally novellas. Good, good, good. I hope to see him, his slithering days end. Do you know about him, Steve? I don't. Do I know about who? Steve, uh, oh, Steve. page chewing oh. Steve. Oh, right, not Erickson. Gotcha. That's uh, not Erickson. Yeah, that's the character that Stephen Erickson wrote based on AP Canavan. Critical. Oh, it's not based on. It yeah. is AP Canavan. Oh, okay. It is AP Canavan. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I've never read the story yet, but it's on my shelf. I need to read it. Well, that one, that one, uh, yeah, that's a bit of bit of a polarizing little novella. That one. <laughs> <laughs> is that the one in Worms of Weirmouth? Is that the right name? Something. Like uh, that? It's uh, Crackpot Trail. Oh, Crackpot Trail. Okay. I think I have it. Yeah, I think it's on my shelf. It, it will, it'll be in, if you have volumes one and two, it'll be in there. Volume Second one. Volume. Buckling and Corbel Bridge. Yeah. The entire time I read Crackpot Trail, I was hearing and seeing AP. So, I mean, it was just, it's like a biography almost. Pretty much. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I have a uh, question and uh, I would love to hear your take on it. Uh, 
it's calling you Erickson feels weird. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, but I would love to hear your take on it. I ask almost every guest now uh, this question because I'm kind of fascinated by it in a lot of ways. Uh, and there's a reason for that that I can explain after. But do you believe that there are, are people who are great writers that maybe aren't the best storytellers and storytellers that aren't the best writers or are, do they have to be coupled? Like, what's your take on that? There are many great storytellers um, who don't write. Hmm. Right. Yeah. You can sit in a bar and listen to somebody who tells a fantastic story. Um, so I think they, they are very distinct things. Um, one of the things with, with, the writing process is that until you are fully comfortable and immersed in, in the craft of writing, uh, your writing process may actually be impediment to your good storytelling abilities. Hmm. And that's the thing that, that workshops um, can be really helpful on because they teach you craft. They can't teach you what ideas to write about and what stories to come up with. That's not what they're there for. It's all about the craft. And so hmm. come out of that, and if you have a good handle on craft, uh, that makes your storytelling abilities uh, that much more easier to convey to other people uh, through the written word as opposed to spoken. I like that a lot. That's definitely the best answer I've had to that question. <laughs> so I have a question about that kind of similar. Um, I feel like even though I don't have a degree in literature, but I feel like I, a lot of talk, I guess, general talk here on booktube or whatever, and I'm probably guilty of it too. Um, sometimes I hear the criticism of theme being on the nose. And I wonder, is that, do you think that that's indicative of poor writing when themes are very blatant in storytelling? Because I know that you've talked before, um, I think on Philip's channel, about your approach to themes kind of being mm, like, a burrow technique, I guess, the metaphor for that, or sort of buried under. Yeah, the invisible rock. Narrative. Yeah, the invisible rock. Um, I don't know um, if the theme is is that important um, as a driving force to what the writer is is creating. Uh, I have no issue with it being up front and center. Um, I mean. One of my favorite series growing up on television was Star Trek, um, the original series. If you want, if you want your themes up front and center, you can't get more obvious than that. And the irony is, of course, uh, the executives uh, at NBC or whatever, you know, right over their heads, right? <laughs> but it was, it's right there in front of you now. So um, sometimes one has to be really obvious. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I, I. Have no hard and fast rule on that. Um, if it's explored um, uh, with integrity, then yeah, that's fine. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I was curious about that. I I was just listening to a lecture by the author R.F. Kuang, um, and she was talking about how her stance on theme is actually she's arguing against the whole notion that theme has to be subtle or sort of hidden and talks about, I guess, her approach being very different than that. And she's, I think she's coming from a very specific place with that and has a good rationale. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of curious about that topic now. Yeah. I mean, when I was at Iowa, you know, the, the, the writing program there, 
um, theme was was a dirty word. It just wasn't wasn't oh, mentioned. Wow. So um, subtext was an even dirtier word. So yeah. you know there, there was a, a, a particular stylistic um, expectation uh, within within that program for that time. I'm sure it's changed now. Um, where yeah these these were simply not relevant you know not relevant to to the process of writing fiction and you know i really was very much out of place when i was at iowa right. i didn't fit with that at all hmm. yeah. uh, maybe i could just try to play devil's advocate for a moment um and the idea that good storytelling is more persuasive when it's more subtle, I guess, where you don't, if you bludgeon the reader with the, the message, uh, they're going to turn off their receptivity to it. Whereas if you're more subtle and, and you work it into the story in a way that's a bit deeper, but, but still present, not as obvious, then maybe you're actually going to be more effective in getting that across or, mm -hmm. or influencing if that's your goal people to see a certain thing i don't know i think um peter barry mentioned something about that in uh beginning theory it's a book i read ap recommended it to me a while back um i think he he mentioned something like that philip hmm. i'm trying to recall what it was <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, fairly, it's pretty common advice i think and i'm not making it up uh it's pretty common advice i think in writing but i wondered what uh mr erickson thought of that can you can you sort of repeat it? Sorry. Sure. Yeah. So the idea that if you bludgeon your reader with all right, yeah, okay, preaching um, versus more subtly weaving it into this, burying it underneath the story, and and therefore yeah. more effectively, uh, uh, perhaps getting the reader to listen. No. Okay. Good. <laughs> no. No. It's it's the presumptions underlying that argument. Um, yeah. Are where where I draw where I take exception. Uh, for one is it's assuming that the theme that you are delivering um, is intended to instruct, educate, or enlighten um, mm -hmm. your reader. And so once you're in that position, you're no longer sharing a story with a reader. You are now taking on um, an instructive role, mm. which presumes that you have more knowledge and uh, are in a superior moral place than the reader. Uh, I don't buy either of those things. Um, it's a different story when you're in a classroom and you have a professor who knows, uh, who knows her, her field of interest mm -hmm. and is instructing you. Um, that's the right context for that notion of authority. Um, when it comes to the human condition, the presumption that a, an author has greater authority over those issues than the reader is a huge one, and one I would not ascribe to at all. And the word so, author is, of course, you know, has, you know, authority has the word author in it, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but That's a good point. It, it's, it, to me, it's much more, let's look at this, you know, let's yeah. explore this particular theme. And yeah. Um, themes are not simply themes are, are generally um, aspects of the human condition and that can be positive. It, they're neutral in a sense. Mm. Um, they are simply parts of the human condition. Um, 
And so there is no, there's no right or wrong. They simply are. Hmm. And if the, the author approaches it from that perspective, then you don't find yourself in that um, superior mindset. Um, in fact, it goes the opposite way. You're, you're humbled by the, the more you explore those themes because you discover just how complicated they are, um, how con internally contradictory they can often be. Um, and so to continue the, the, that argument that if you're presenting a theme in a very obvious fashion um, versus uh, slipping it in, you're actually talking there, I think, about authorial intent because um, slipping it in is the same as being subversive. Hmm. So you are subversively placing themes in your story to spring them on the reader subconsciously uh, or at the end of the book consciously, um, which is a very strange mindset to be in if you're, if as a writer, if this is, this is the nature of your relationship with your reader is to slip one over hmm. um, or to deceive them in, in ways that are not plot related, you know, which is, you know, surprise plot. I mean, that, that's a cool thing. Everybody likes that. Right. But to actually deceive them in terms of their moral stance um, on the basis of those particular themes, that's that sounds very, very dubious to me. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting response. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Of course, Abdul Cannavale in, in the chat there is reminding you that you, there's no intent anyway because you're dead. Yeah, yeah. That is <laughs> That is true. Says it's, funny, it's funny how, how that as I'm going to go off on a rant here. Are you guys ready for a rant? Yes. yes. Okay. All right. Well, I've not seen any of Rings of Power. Okay. I have an but idea. I'm certainly seeing a lot of attacks on the first two episodes. And most of them relate to um, the, the, the defense is, which is kind of fatuous in this case, but let's just call it um, fidelity to text. Hmm. Uh, fidelity to world building, if you will. And so the attacks are on, on the basis of uh, actors who are uh, people of color appearing in this in this this fictional universe that Tolkien's created. Um, and so what I'm sort of gathering is this is this is very strange. It, it could not happen, I don't think. Well, it has happened with with Gaiman, but. It could not happen if Tolkien were alive. Um, hmm. That you would get this particular argument to regarding fidelity to text, um, and I'll I'll explain why in a second. But it, the fidelity to text can only operate if one dispenses with fidelity to the person or the author. In other words, because Tolkien's dead, he's not there to actually stand up and say, hold on a minute, you know, stop gatekeeping, stop standing between me and this, this new potential audience because we're in a more inclusive world right now. And this is an audience as a writer I would love to reach and have those people find something to identify with in my works. So that kind of gatekeeping really, really pisses me off because... Hmm. It's fidelity to a text over 
or rather creating infidelity to the person who actually created the text. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know you're Canadian, but uh, you're going to have to work on the emotional volume when you do a rant. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to be very, very clear in what I'm saying here. People yeah. can argue and complain about production quality, you know, acting, script writing, all the rest. But if they start arguing about um, inclusivity in terms of casting, they are so far off base. And if Tolkien were alive today, and I have no other connection with Tolkien other than we're both writers, but I'm taking from a writer's point of view, he would say, what the fuck are you doing? And what are you talking about? I want to reach those people. This is the way to do it. If an author wants to reach the maximum number of people and actually engage uh, and produce works where more people are actually able to identify with aspects of the story they are telling. That is the author's purpose. And that is their dream is to have an audience of six, seven billion, right? Wow. Yeah. So anybody who steps in front of that and says, no, those people don't, they're not for you to reach because you wrote about stuff back in the 30s and 40s. And it was an entirely different patriarchal white world at the time where you were writing. We're going to, we're going to hold this gate closed ah. to all these other people. And the author would say, fuck you, you know, yeah. <laughs> get out of the way, get out of the way. Yeah. Right. So that, at, at the very least, it's a massive disservice to the story as well. Then it's isn't presumptuous. It? It's arrogant. It's, extraordinary do you feel like at times readers get more attached to lore and being you know with the canon or whatever than the author him like he or she does like yeah yeah absolutely and, and there's reasons for that um we don't know for each of these individuals how important those works were for their lives mm -hmm. um we don't know where they were at the time of, of the reading it um we don't know how where they were developmentally, because quite often this is a case where it's adolescent readers who become attached to these things throughout their lives. And there's nothing, there's nothing um, intrinsically flawed or wrong with that. Um, so that kind of loyalty to, it's not a loyalty, actually it's not loyalty to the text. It's loyalty to the memory and the experience of reading that thing. That's the loyalty. And so when that gets, quote, challenged by any external forces, you get up in arms. But it's actually not relevant to the text at all because the text, the text has to be something that has built into it the capacity to uh, evolve over time. Otherwise, it becomes a lost language. Um, it becomes a lost text. Um, and once you bear that in mind, then every generation that discovers that work is going to uh, relate to it in a unique way and in a new way, potentially. And that is, that's the gift of writing. That is what, you know, these books and the bookstores you go into, they have books that are 150 years old or whatever. That's what it's all about. Uh, it's about a new generation of readers, um, coming to these old stories and, making those stories or finding or discovering that those stories have something fundamental um, to contribute to their growth as a human being. Yeah. And human nature. Yeah. yeah. So, to speak true throughout ages. Yeah. And so drawing the line, constantly drawing the line through time is pointless. 
right? <laughs> the line, everything keeps moving. You can't, you can't draw the line. You can't build the wall. It's not going to work. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so why bother? Why try? Why not celebrate that next generation that's going to discover these works? And if you've created a series now that has that's inclusive um, visually um, and culturally and, and so on, well, that next generation is going to be that much bigger yeah. of, of people appreciating the work. Yeah. You know, why would you? It's basically because of that nostalgic tie to that personal experience to the work. Um, it become it almost becomes the entire world in terms of defending. It, it's there are no there are no other interpretations possible there's only this one and i can understand the context of it and i can sympathize but um it's an inclusive world now and you know for white middle-aged people like me on northern european extraction well we got to suck it up you know, <laughs> stop writing stop thinking just suck it up you know yeah. um, it, it, and it's, it's also an archaeological point of view because this period of uh, cultural domination that emerged out of Europe, it's a blip. It's a freaking blip. That's all it is. Um, you look at the history of, of ancient Egypt. Um, we're talking 3,000 years at least of uh, contiguous, continual cultural identification. Yeah. 3,000 years. They weren't white. Um, they weren't European, you know, so this, this momentary blip that, that, that is now, we're, we're now ending, it's, it's coming to an end. Um, and those who benefited the most from it are kicking and screaming and holding on, you know, tooth and claw, uh, to its dregs. Um, but it's time is done. It's done. Hmm. And, um, you know, uh, we got to suck it up. That's a thing that I really love about your series, along with uh, Ian Esselmont's books too, where there's this viewpoint of human beings in a moment and a, a perspective where you zoom out and it's, I've likened it to seeing a, a, one of those films in the American Museum of Natural History where you you say, here's planet earth. And then you just sort of zoom mm -hmm. out and then you, you get the sense of your own smallness in the context of something far more vast. And so often we live with this perspective that our, our present is everything, that everything has always been the way it is now, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But no, when you, when, you, when you experience, like you guys are so great at describing these layers of history and, 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 and civilizations past, and you even screw around with poking fun at historians who think they can actually capture all of that. Um, that's a perspective that I find very valuable and, and something that is very conducive to fantasy as well, I think, that this, this idea of these layers of the past and giving us the sense of our own place in this big universe. We're pretty tiny after mm. all. You know. Hell blue dot. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it's just brilliant the way you're also able to zoom in uh, very closely with characters too, <laughs> even just for brief moments. And uh, I know I watched the wonderful discussion that you had with Professor Fireballs on uh, Psychic Distance. And mm. that was 
so illuminating for me as a reader. I mean, I, I know that's uh, John Gardner, right? His concept of psychic distance and there's um, multiple layers to that. Many, many authors will talk about it, but yeah, psychic distance. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah, but it's something that I just, I think about all the time now when I'm reading is just how close I feel to characters when I'm reading about them or how close or distance they feel to the world around them or to each other and just ways that authors can play with that. Um, I just think it's fascinating. Is that the one where they talked about Saren Paddock or a different one? Um, I think it was a different one. Okay. Yeah, but that one I loved. Uh, I think that Saren Paddock, I'm trying to think. No, I think that was a different, I think that was a different one, but I okay. couldn't remember. Well, Iron Bars is in that scene too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I love all those talks. I just, uh, it's interesting because I'm not a writer of, of fiction. And so, and I don't even really have any interest in being a fictional writer, but I just find the techniques fascinating because it's fascinating to me to figure out how I'm having this psychological effect with what I'm reading. Yeah. And, and just, just learning about these things, you then you can recognize it in, in the writing that, you know, the books you're reading. You suddenly oh, say, oh, yeah. I know what's going on here. That's cool. Or that didn't work. And now you know why, right? So yeah, useful for, for readers as well, for sure. Yeah. And it's interesting because some, you know, you would think that seeing those things would pull you out of the story, but it, it doesn't. For me, it sometimes Good. deepens my experience. Like, for example, um, I, I know Jimmy was the one actually who got me to uh, pick this up sooner than later, but I recently picked up this book called Stoner by John Williams. Oh, so <laughs> and, good. Uh, oh, it's so good. The whole time, and it's a, I guess it was written in 65, and it's a literary fiction book. And the premise is about this university professor, and you follow his life from when he's a young boy, when he's living on a farm, to when he dies. And he lives this from a distance, if you look from the outside, it seems like he lives a very unremarkable life. Like he's somebody you would just see in passing. Oh, that's that professor. And you wouldn't think anything of him. And the way John Williams writes his story, I just, I felt look. so intimate with this character yeah. and what he was going through. And at the same time, it's a historical fiction novel in the sense that it's taking place in, um, I think, Columbia University. That's right. Yep. during the 30s and World War II, all of this happening in the background. But because of the character he is, he's kind of a very stoic character. He feels very distanced from everything that's happening in the world around him. At the same time, as you can feel how everything in the world around him is affecting the characters he's interacting with. Yep. And it just creates this incredible narrative experience. Um, but yeah, all that came to life and all I could think of the whole time was that psychic distance conversation you two had. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's so neat the way he's doing that. So it's not set in the late sixties hippie commune. Mm -hmm. or no. <laughs> it's not stoner because he's it's, a stoner. <laughs> yeah. I was disappointed in that fact, but after I got yeah. over that, it was a pretty good book. Uh, it, it, that book is the opposition to the great Gatsby. The great Gatsby, mm -hmm. he Gatsby's supposed to be kind of cool. Obviously, you know, his end is not cool, but you know, glitz and the glamour and the fame. And uh Stoner is the exact opposite. He is the mundane, undervalued, underappreciated professor in a marriage that isn't working. And uh there's a profound moment in that book, and I'll I'll never forget it because I think it's the first time I've ever wept in the gym. I was I was just audiobook why stretch. So I'm stretching. 
doing my thing. And uh, there's a moment where he basically graduates and he goes back. He's going to accept to be a professor. And he goes in and tells his parents, they're like, all right, now you're back. You can work on the farm. We're proud of you, but you know, it's time to work on the farm. And it's not a big moment. He just says, I'm, I'm going back. I'm not staying here. And it's like this admission that what his parents had built for him and had expected for him and the path they took is not good enough for him. It is like this unspoken declaration that I does, I will do better than this. And it crushed me, man. It crushed me. Jimmy, Jimmy, I'm, I'm picturing you in the gym crying and all these big wrestler dudes coming to comfort you. Bro, mm-hmm. I'm telling you, I was, I literally had tears like dropping off my face. You have I was to like, read it, Philip. It's so good. It's one it's of the most powerful fantasy. things I've ever read. It, me too. It's not fantasy, but it's, I, it's so good. Amazing. It is also, amazing. His, his prose is phenomenal. His like, prose is so good. My mom is a huge prose snob, by the way. And she listened to the audiobook too. And she was just stunned. She's, she was just stunned by the prose. Fun fact mm-hmm. when he released that book, uh, the critics disparaged him for his prose. Hmm. Yeah, not surprised. Yeah, they said he was too plain, very, very like, like just meh, you know, Hmm. too straightforward. (laughs) No way. My mom and I like sat and talked about the subtext of like this one part where he's looking out the window and he's looking at the snow and he's thinking about the purpose in life and just the way all that came together in this one simple scene. It's incredible. It, it's a it's a bo- I always, it's a boring book that has no right to be that great. It's I tell people like you're, it's probably going to be boring, but like I promise, it's a it's something to experience. Uh, you read the first two paragraphs, and the first two paragraphs tell you everything that's going to happen in the book. Yeah, <laughs> it's like this man named William Stoner. He lived. He was a university professor, and he was he died. You know, it just it's very like straightforward. This yeah. is a very simple and remarkable boring man, and then you read the story, and it's. It just gets you on every level. It's amazing. Beautiful book. I have it on my shelf because of uh, both of you. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. The audio book is free on Audible. Yeah, free on Audible. And it's like six hours. It's very short. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, I had a question from Daniel, or AKA Dr. Puff and stuff. Uh, When was the last time a video production company had approached you to talk Malazan and how did it go? I can't comment on these things. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'll take that as good news. Yeah. Yes. Good news. yeah. I can say, I can answer that question. It has never happened to me. No one has ever asked me <laughs> to make Malazan into. Uh, <laughs> so. I think you signed an NDA, didn't you, Philip? I know a lot of people talk, by the way, about wishing they could get more of the trade paperbacks of Malazan. Yeah, can we make that happen? I know you can't. You can't do a thing about that either. That's publishing. <laughs> That's got nothing to do with me, unfortunately. I had I to work so hard get to get my trade paperback of Memories of Ice. Yep. I had a good connection. Otherwise, I would have probably not have that on my shelf. Wow. I'm still yeah. waiting on that sub press. They uh, they had some issues at the printers, and I'm like, guys, we did. Where we are we at? Yeah, it's been radio silence for two months, and I'm getting nervous. <laughs> well, I mean, they have to return them all, so um, it's a big task. Yeah, uh, these guys are perfectionists. They they want to make sure that you get the right thing. So and man, that cover. Yeah, the yeah, thing. no kidding. So you have um, 
you have a few Malazan books left to write, right? Um, yeah. Um, three novels and two novellas. How, how do you feel? Because uh, like the finish line is, is somewhere here, you know, within reach. Do you feel a sense of relief at that? Do you feel a sense of dread, uh, accomplishment? Like, what is that like saying like the final chapter of Malazan? I'll tell you when I get there. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, right now, I don't know if this was the same with, with you guys, but when I was swimming uh, competitively, I swam the mile, 1500. And you set your targets, uh, you know, the first 100 or the first 200 meters. Um, and, and you only think about those 200 meters. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the next one and you go to the next one. And eventually you close and you finish the race. That's how it is with this. I'm thinking primarily about uh, No Life Forsaken, which is what I'm going to be wrapping up. It should be finished by spring. Um, once it goes off to the publisher, I turn immediately to Walk in Shadow and I uh, go through the slog of um, however long that's going to take, uh, I'll do it. Because I know when I've delivered No Life Forsaken, it's going to be at least a year before it's um, going to be published. And it'll be at least six months before I see the copywritten manuscript. So um, that gives me some time to, to run through and finish Walking Shadow. So you just you finish the, the thing in front of you and then worry yeah. about the rest later. Yeah, so it's a good way not to get overwhelmed. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. And you can do that writing a novel as well. Your task is to finish the scene, stop, yeah. and then the next scene, and then the next. And then you've done that chapter. And your task is to write the next one. Hmm. So. It works for students writing research papers too. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Works in coding as well. Yeah. <laughs> Take a big thing. Someone says, "Build me this," and you say, "Okay, that's terrible. I gotta like break it down, or I'm gonna have a panic attack." And you're like, "Okay, I'll just make a button. Let's make a button," and then you build up from there. Uh, Shelf Senator Bryce has a question. Well, mouse swimmers are the most hardcore. Were you able to negative split? I hope you know what that means. Uh, I think I know what that is. That's actually to. Um... That's painful. Well, yeah. no, yeah. make your make your last hundred. Uh, faster than the first, I think, but progressively. Um, I don't remember. <laughs> long ago. You know, I mean, back then, believe it or not, we didn't have goggles. Um, so you're in chlorinated water. And so your eyes are just by the end of the mile, man, you're done. But um, I ran, I would run a, run a song through my head. Uh, I think it was Sympathy for the Devil, which had the right pacing, the right beat. And uh, just, yeah, put the song on repeat in my head um, during the race. That's awesome. Yeah, I used to be a hardcore runner, but I've never done it competitively with anybody else but myself. Yeah, Josh, you're right about that. If you're, yeah. if you're a good runner, um, <laughs> if you're an idiot like some people who run marathons you, you you go too fast in the first half and you run out of gas so, yeah. do you listen to music when you write uh i used to um now i listen to music if whatever the cafe soundtrack is is deplorable <laughs> then I, I put the headphones on <laughs> um, what are your, your go-to's 
I, I tend to go to stuff with really good lyrics, hmm. which sounds weird, but I find them inspiring. Hmm. Um, and I really cannot write to instrumental um, pieces. That's interesting. Yeah, isn't it strange? Yeah, but I need good lyrics. Um, Can you give us examples? Oh, well. Let's see, Joni Mitchell, um, Bob Dylan, okay. uh, yeah. Bruce Coburn, Canadian uh, guy, um, some Pink Floyd occasionally. Oh, that's my favorite band. <laughs> oh, they're phenomenal. Um, Dark Side of the I, I kind of sort of, um, let's just say it's flashback inducing. And I'll just leave it yeah. at that. Um, <laughs> ah. So, so who else? Um, oh, hang on a sec. I'm being called. Hmm. Yeah. What is what it, Claire? It's funny because I would find that so distracting yeah. to, to yeah. listen to lyrics. I, I couldn't write because I'd be listening to the lyrics. So it would be like just sort of, it's almost like it is weird. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, is, it sounds so weird to me that you would, yeah. that, that would work for you, but Hey, whatever works. I think the product is pretty good. So yeah. Can you give me three minutes? I'll be right back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Take your time. We'll, we'll right, chat. We know there, how to do that. There was a, um, we were kind of talking about like, I, I, first off, I love the rings of power discussion. Like I think that that, that was excellent. And yeah. one of the things that I was thinking about, is super, a lot of people were mad that Corliss Valerion, and, and by a lot, I mean not that many, were mad that Corliss Valerion was black in House of the Dragon because the Valerions was be from Valeria, which are like cousins that target all this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And George has been asked about this. He's also been asked about some of the lore changes in the show. And he did an interview with History of Westeros. <laughs> and he has this big thing he's talking about. And he goes, the, see, the thing about lore is it's not real. <laughs> And I was like, <laughs> and he's like, I'm not trying to hate on the fans, but uh, it's not real. And I just like had this moment where I was like, oh, yeah, it's not real. And like, that's how authors look at this. Like, they're like, you know, some it's people say, you know, you get super attached to characters. But I've heard like the likes of like Joe Abercrombie be like, well, no, like they're part of the story. Like they're a piece to move the story along and like they're a device, right? Like or they're, they're a tool. Um, and sometimes I think as fans we have to like back up just a little bit like interesting yeah. you know what i mean like and i get it hey i, get, I can get tribal okay if, if i need to i can get pretty tribal i can get a little gatekeeping with the lore i get it but i think as readers sometimes we gotta back off just a little bit hmm. just gotta mm. back off a jimmy bit. I'm, I'm not really listening to the noise but is house of the dragon then getting the same kind of no. uh no, Not as much as the power. No, um, for the most part, I would say the overwhelming majority are finding it to be really quality. So it has shushed a lot of that because mm. it's just good. Like it's just like there's more other stuff to talk about now. Also, the guy playing Corliss is killing it, mm -hmm. like killing it. He's doing such a good job, which we knew he would. Um, and again, it's a mind, you know, it's a bunch of idiots. If I'm being completely frank, like I just think it's a bunch of morons. Um, and it was just amazing to hear George say that. And he was talking more like also about some of the lore changes because we were like book show, you know, or uh, book canon, show canon. And he's just like, it's not real. It's not real. It's fine, guys. Like, I promise it's going to be OK. And That's exactly that. what uh, Stephen Erickson was talking about. You know, mm -hmm. For the, the fans are more up in arms and the authors. It's like, yeah, it's it's all made up, guys. You know? Yeah. yeah. 
You know, it's uh, that's in, and by the way, Jimmy, I know you said in your wrap up that you were thinking of getting away from doing the book to show comparisons. And yeah. I was going to let you know, I actually I haven't watched your your videos on that yet. But I actually have intended to. <laughs> I just uh, but I but if I do watch the show, yours is the one I want to watch because I know you're going to talk about the book to show comparisons. And I'm curious, though, I haven't read the book yet. Uh, you could probably watch it honestly like spoiling fire and blood it's like like for instance the first episode's covered about like two paragraphs like that's how oh, wow. little context yeah. there is which actually makes as adaptation very interesting right to fill that dead space ah. really really interesting i like what ap said in the chat he said we spend hundreds of hours with our favorite worlds and books and i think that is where uh, right like yeah i bet some people hear that you know Steve can't remember like if someone was alive at, at the end of House of Chains and they're like, what do you mean you can't write? You're the audience. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, dude, like I wrote it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Wait, what you were saying about characters being kind of narrative devices. I just recently finished reading uh, the third Dune book, Children of Dune. And nice. I kind of, oh, it was so good. I loved it. Like I can understand why some people wouldn't be as into those later books, I guess. Um, but I loved it. And the thing is, the characters, they feel, I guess, how you would describe them flat, uh, Philip. They feel like each one represents more of a philosophy and a culture than they do kind of like an individual person that you would know or something. But I just, for me, I, I loved it. I loved that exploration and those conversations that they evoked. Yeah, flat characters serve a purpose. It's not, I, if people hear the word flat and they think bad. But actually, flat characters can be very important. I mean, they're all over, like, you know, Charles Dickens has tons of flat characters. They're stereotypes. They're one-dimensional. But they're vivid because yeah. in that, that one character characteristic is just so well done. Uh, so you can do flat characters really well, and they can serve a really important purpose. Often they're, they're symbolic, uh, like you say. Yes. Actually, it's interesting because there is a character. I can't say who it is because of spoilers, but there's a character... I'm talking about the third Dune book, Children of Dune, uh, Stephen Erickson. But there was a character in there that I was thinking about when I finished. And I thought, this person's journey really reminds me of Felicin in Dead House Gates. Oh. Like there are so many parallels, uh, but just done in a very different way. Because obviously it's a very different approach to characterization. But I just find it interesting just the way that can be explored and sort of like a different characterization approach. Though I'm not like the expert <laughs> on talking about those techniques, but it's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, I think to AP's point about us spending a lot of time with our books, and I think some, you know, especially as when we're younger, those memories like we talked about earlier, I think that leads to some of that gatekeeping is we feel like we have ownership somehow of um, certain stories or characters or worlds. Hmm. Well, I mean, you own the experience, your personal experience. Yeah. But actually, that's really is as far as it goes. Yeah, that's that's why I get, um, you know, some of the super, like the superhero movies and some people say, well, that's not my fill in the character here. That's not my Captain America. That's not my Batman. That's whatever. It's like it's not your character it's just an interpretation it's just a, mm -hmm. a version of it just be happy and with all the new fantasy uh you know the, the series that are being made it's like we should all celebrate them even if we don't enjoy them 
the better they do, the more likely it is for other series to be made. So exactly, exactly. Just, you know, it let yeah. people enjoy what they're going to enjoy and. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. A lot, I think a lot of this criticism is really fantasy fans shooting themselves in the foot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's frustrating in that respect. With a bow, I guess, right? No, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There's also like the phenomenon that's going on with Marvel, where they're coming up with so much Marvel content that I see people kind of repelling against it, and they're like, well, "I don't want any more." Like, I wish they'd stop making it. And like I understand that there could be like criticisms of how it's being done if it's if they feel like they're just tossing things out just to make money. I get that. Like there's a greed aspect from a corporation, but I also think it's wild because like I'm old enough to remember like I never thought I would see another like Superman movie or another Batman movie. And you watch the the older ones. And you're just like, wow, that's crazy. Like they may never do that again to now where it's like i wish they'd stop making those those movies and i'm just like that's wild like we are so spoiled in a way um yeah. i think it's a little bit more complicated than that to be honest but uh because you know disney and everything else but yeah i don't know it's a weird time it's a very yeah. strange time and it's almost like the thing now is to be negative about something so hard out of the gate like mm. you have to be you know just dumpster it you see a teaser dumpster it. You got to make sure that you're cool enough that if, if it's bad, you're like, I told you so. It's like, yeah, very strange. And I feel so bad, but I find myself kind of avoiding all of it because of that. Like it's exhausting. Just, I just don't want to even, you know, engage at all. I and feel that not... way about rings of power. <laughs> I feel that way about rings. It was so exhausting. Cause you know, we're all tuned in, you know, we're plugged in. We see comments all the time on our channels and, and whatnot. And, um, Really made me like reevaluate to like what level do I want to engage online about certain topics? Because when I sat down to watch Rings of Power, I as soon as I hit play, I was tired. I was just tired yeah. of of the yeah. discourse that I personally thought a lot of it was just garbage. Um, people making wild, bombastic claims without ever watching it, which is insane yeah. to me. Yeah. <laughs> like you, have, <laughs> you got to watch the damn thing. Um, and 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 it it bummed me out a little bit. Because like I feel like ten years ago, if I knew there was a Tolkien show coming on, whether or not it was good or not, I would have been excited. Oh yeah. And I just felt tired, and that really mm -hmm. bothers me. Yeah. yeah. I also wonder how much of this criticism and this, uh, you know, this kind of negative discourse is because of people just wanted attention. How do they really think this, or is it just a way to like a, shine the spotlight on themselves? Hmm. It's an interesting question there. I think too, from the perspective of a creator. Um, whether it's a show or you're a writer writing a book. And I wonder what you think of this, Mr. Erickson. Uh, on the one hand, you want to listen to fans and, and what works well and all that. But on the other hand, it could be, as, as Jimmy says, I'm, I'm sure, exhausting to listen to, <laughs> especially when you feel like, oh, my yeah. God, there's, they're, getting, they're, like, they're twisting it around and they're turning. I mean, so and that, that's something I think you, as a creative person, you have to find a way to cope with, don't you? Sure, but I would argue that all of you who are going on um, uh, YouTube and discussing things, uh, you have entered, in, in, ent entered into the same public arena um, yeah. where uh, you are as vulnerable as, as an author or any artist uh, yeah. or actor or whatever. Um, and so, um, in a respect, there's no such thing as a, a as you know a safe place. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, once you're in the public um, domain, uh, you're fair game, and and you know at times unfair game um, because you just happen to be there. Yeah. Um, so if people are driven by particular agendas, then uh, you have a target painted on you um, potentially. Uh, yeah, as I yeah I mentioned. I, I was talking with the AP. And I call it the age of melodrama. The last when we were having a conversation, he's been dropping the phrase ever since. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, that's how it feels. It, it, it's um, we're driven to extremes, um, and the algorithm methods uh, oh, of yeah. these channels um, are also uh, attuned. To those extremes and so it, it generates itself it's a natural product of how mm-hmm. the algorithms work um that rage and anger and hate um are magnetic in terms of attention yeah um, and so it generates itself and you know the only way you can fight against it is is to keep doing what you're doing um mm-hmm. uh keep the discourse civil uh, enjoy yourselves, um, deliver positive energy rather than negative because it's the negative stuff that clings to us. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's why I think a lot of writers just have to, for their own sanity, stay away, um, oh, yeah. engagement because that negativity, it, it's wounding, you know, um, yeah. it's, and I'm sure, you know, if you guys have had negative comments on, you know, on your sites, uh, you know what it's like. It's it's not fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's this wonderful feature on YouTube where you can block. Yeah, I know. Person, <laughs> if it gets too obnoxious, so yeah. it's like. Well, the writers can't. That's the yeah, problem. You, you yeah. can't do that. Yeah. No. yeah. I've been very fortunate, probably because I am a smaller channel, but it's also. It's also fortunate, though, that I've been able to find people like these three, uh, like Steve Talks Books and Jimmy Nuts and Philip Chase, people who are setting a positive example in the community. Yeah, and what, what, I, what I'm impressed with is the commentary generally that I see. Obviously, you're, you may be blocking stuff, but the commentary I see is, is extremely positive um, oh, yeah. and, and engaged. And so you're doing, you're doing a great job you know, for that reason. It's... It's it's getting people out and, and enjoying um, talking about the things they like. That's yeah. you know that's, that, that's all a good thing. It's all yeah. a good thing. Yeah, especially when you look at the rest of YouTube, because I mean everything in the world's covered on YouTube. There's a lot of just spaces that are super negative. Oh, yeah. um, I feel like definitely in the book community, uh, we we tend to get the more thoughtful people, mm-hmm. above average human beings. Yeah. There's more of a, there's more of a time investment. Uh, it's true. So. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Yeah, I mean, how many how many places do you find people talking for two or three hours about <laughs> books and <laughs> the stuff that we're talking about? I I, I don't think we're, that's the the norm. I don't have a, a great sense of uh, what's going on in the rest of YouTube, other than tennis highlights. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> but my guess is that it's we're a bit weird, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. I think so. You think? Can, can <laughs> yeah. Just a little bit. 
but it's yeah. fun. We're having a blast. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think a lot of it is what you put out. I mean, if you, that's true. You know, what you put out is what you get back in. So if you are constantly negative or you have rant or whatever, it's going to, you're going to get those kind of people respond to it. And it's going to just be a, a cycle. Yeah, I think Alan's actually a really good example of someone who is extraordinarily passionate about what his opinions are, but Alan still brings a positive energy. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why I admire him so well, or mm -hmm. so much rather, uh, is because he, he does it so well. He does. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Shoes. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, he, uh, <laughs> he's one of a kind. He's just yeah. one of the kind guy. He really is. He really is. Yeah, he's great. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yes, we are. We are weird. <laughs> oh, Paul. <laughs> oh dear. And uh, I just wanted to ask uh, Mr. Erickson a question about uh, Malazan. It has has a reputation of being, uh, you know, complex or being. You know, I think some readers are intimidated by it. So if a reader came to you and said, I want to, I'm going to start the series, what advice would you give to them? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> just keep going, you know. Um, the first book is, is setting the table in, in, in many respects. Um, but it's also lining up all as many tropes as it possibly could and kicking them all down. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the exercise there. Um, and I had great fun doing it. Um, but it, it's, it gets more serious with dead house gates. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so if, if you come away from dead house gates, um, I guess appreciating the book, then you'll probably be okay. Yeah. And you can keep going. Yeah. That's well said. Yeah, the the farther I get into the series, the more I love Guardians of the Moon. The farther I get, the more I, I yep. And I, I loved it the first time, but the more the farther I get, the more I look back on it and the things that happened. And that's a really amazing thing about the series is it will get you to look back at the further you get, the more you yep. look back at previous books and storylines, and you suddenly have more context for them, or uh, they just sink in deeper somehow. Yeah. I think uh, House of Chains for me was the one that aged the best um, when I finished the series. Like thinking back on it and just like where things end up, I'm just like, man, that book was excellent. Yeah. Which, you know, I know like Memories of Ice is very, very beloved, right? Like I, I see people just love it so much. But I, I remember reading House of Chains and at first being like, wow, you know, kind of, kind of a reset in some ways and uh, not a reset, but just different. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then finishing it and be like, why, do, why don't more people talk about this and this ending? Yeah, it got me. It got me, too. I was on a plane back from Vegas. I remember when I when I finished reading it and wow. it, it tear did. Yeah, I guess I cry a lot when I read. Malazan. I cry a lot. Yeah, I'm getting more cry. sentimental with age. But man, that whole the whole series. Made I'm me a cry weeper. Times. Well, I mean, Memories of Ice with with. Dead House Gates, well, Gardens, Dead House, Memories, the climactic scenes were, were, were being ramped up. Mm -hmm. And I felt I'd almost gone as, as high as I could oh. um, with Memories of Ice. And I did not want to try to up that. 
in scale mm -hmm. with the next one, the next one, because that would set the precedent of constantly trying to, you know, raise yeah. the stakes. Um, and that's, I mean, I realized early that was going to be impossible because I knew that Memories of Ice finished with, with um, a, quite a few knockout punches, I think, um, and was very, very um, cinematic and, and huge in scale. Um, so there's no way I could keep upping that scale. Um, I knew I, I thought I could probably match it by the end, by hopefully, uh, Gardens of the Moon, I mean, um, Crippled God's conclusion. But I, you know, that would have felt even that would have felt anticlimactic if I tried to push and push and push for uh, that high cinema yeah. um, kind of endings. So I decided to flip it. Oh, so good though. I, I brought it right down to the human level, uh, yes. the yeah. level between two people yeah. absolutely yeah. perfect yeah yeah it's interesting because I think it was like when I was reading that particular book there's been a lot of conversation in our community or there was at the time about rating books whether through star ratings or ranking the books and where do you rank the Malazan books which one's your favorite and that kind of thing and I think it was that book that kind of broke my head and I was like I can't <laughs> I can't uh, reduce these books to a simple rating or ranking. And I still feel that way. I just, it broke my head <laughs> in that sense. Um, but I just, I, I love the fact that you took a different direction with that book. For me, it was brilliant the way it came together and it was so intimate and yeah, it just couldn't have ended any other way for me. It was perfect. Well, it also served within the series. It negated expectation, right? Because yeah. the other ones had me doing that, and then I flip it, so it, it kind of levels everything out. And that allowed me then to completely shift and go to Midnight Tides, which was in a completely different setting, mm -hmm. telling your story. So Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me every book in the series is structurally a little bit different. Like you're doing yeah. something different. And I it, love that. I love that. And yeah. I, I'd imagine that that is largely deliberate. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and yeah. wait wait till you get to No Life Forsaken. Oh, my goodness. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> you, I mean, the God is not willing, has not prepared you for this book. Take, <laughs> take a word No. Okay. So you're, you're, you're pulling uh, another... Uh, uh, midnight tides on us here or something no i, I feel what... like a false fan here is no life forsaken is that the second in the witness trilogy or yeah it's that... what i'm writing right now mm -hmm. yeah <gasps> so um no there, there's i i don't even know if there's a comparison with this i don't even know what what the hell i'm doing with it <laughs> <laughs> it is just um uh niffle is gonna go crazy when he reads this one. Oh, Let's good great he's he's a genius he's a great so it'll be it'll be cool to see him go crazy he will yeah he's gonna be tearing his hair out guaranteed <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow wow yeah they were they were commenting on uh ap's recent video uh earlier in the chat pl had made an, a, a good comment about it and i have to admit that professor fireballs did make a couple good points there is this, is this the 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 eight um, yes. yes. Yeah. Misconceptions or whatever. Eight-ish uh, mis misconceptions. Yeah, I lost was, track yeah. while he was talking, but that was great. That was yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> that was a fantastic video. Yeah. Yes, it, it was. was. But I also think he 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 mentioned how the the, the reread thing, like oh, you have to reread the series, and I mm -hmm. love the way he addressed that. Actually, yeah. Uh, having just reread it myself, 
but I thought he made an excellent point about approaching it and not with, with the fact that you're going to get a ton out of it on the first read and enjoy what you're getting out of it while you do that. Right, Joanna? Yeah. Yes. So did Jimmy, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I uh, had a question uh, from Nathan, Trill Nathan. Uh, I'm currently reading the Conan stories when you mm -hmm. said to read up on Howard's life. Did you have a specific book or biography in mind? Yeah. Or did you just mean in general? Um, did I have a book called The Howard Reader? Rings a bell. I think it was called The Howard Reader. Hmm. Um, and it provided uh, biographical information. Um, I, I think that's where I got it from. Um, but I mean, uh, there's not a lot there. There's a lot of it is drawn from letters that he wrote to um, his fellow pulp, pulp writers, um, including Lovecraft, I think. Uh, but he did a lot of writing back and forth with various other writers. Um, yeah. And those have, you know, those were saved, I guess, by yeah. recipients. Um, but it, no, it sounded like a pretty I think some people were thinking that had he continued, he would have left fantasy and sword and sorcery behind. He would not have continued with Conan. That um, um, he was heading more towards writing um, westerns and uh, horror, horror mm -hmm. film westerns and comedic uh, westerns. Sure. Yeah, there is a the Robert E. Howard Reader. There's a it's there is a book. So. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I think I've got it lying around somewhere. I love what little I've read of the Conan stories. And I would just shout out to anybody in the chat if you're interested in Robert E. Howard or Ed or Burroughs or um, Lovecraft. And I highly recommend the channel Michael K. Vaughn. He is like a Robert E. Howard expert. He has a, uh, he has videos on his channel every week on Robert E. Howard and just hmm. speaks beautifully about his life and about his writing and about the stories. It's a fantastic channel. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. There is. Uh, Mike had a question. Do you have any advice for coming up with book titles? They're so unique from Gardens of the Moon to No Life Forsaken. Uh, no Life Forsaken came out of a poem I wrote, which I'm probably going to scrap, but that one line survived. Um, <laughs> yeah, titles, that, I, that's interesting. I mean, I had the titles for the 10 books even before I started Gardens of the Moon, I think. Um, not including Gardens of the Moon, because Cam and I came up with that one for the script, uh, film script version. Um, no, I don't know. I don't know. Quite often, I know when I was writing short stories, um, non-fantasy, um, contemporary fiction stuff, my titles generally referred to thematic elements rather than anything yeah. else. Um, well, wow, that strongly suggests how much you thought about the themes before you wrote the books, yeah. because the titles are often so much a signpost about the, uh, or, or are reiterating a lot of the important themes in their dust of dreams. And yeah, and, and most of them are iterated in a previous book. Yep. Yep. There's always these echoes. There's these echoes throughout. So you really yeah. thought that through, didn't you? Wow. I had the titles. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I find that so interesting. Huh? Yeah. yeah. And uh, Jason had a question. Have you ever done any of your own illustrations for the Malazan series? Well, there's, there's crop, but um, 
I get the ambition to do so on occasion, but um, uh, when I'm writing, I'm not I'm not painting or drawing. Uh, they draw from the same well, and so you know, probably when I finish some, all my novels and decide that's it as a writer, I'll, I'll go back to my paints and um, pick up oils again and um, start exploring that kind of stuff. But um, will you be using ochre by any chance? <laughs> You would not believe how much I use yellow ochre. <laughs> I, have, I have two Marines in uh, No Life Forsaken who spend almost a page and a half discussing ochre. Just to really, you know, push the point home. <laughs> I love it. Great, great. And what would be something that your readers would be surprised to learn about you? About me? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, surprised. I think a lot of people are surprised when they learn that you were a fencer. That was going to be mine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I started at 18 in order to rehabilitate um, some groin damage from being a goaltender in hockey. Ooh. Oh, um, painful. And yeah, somebody said, well, you know, fencing will, will strengthen that area and rehabilitate that. So I got into fencing um, and I only stopped about seven years ago when I partial tear of a hamstring uh, mm -hmm. during a lunge. Um, so I've not got, gone back to it. I think I'm probably too old now to actually go back to it. Um, well, maybe not. I don't know. Um, and that certainly helps with, with choreographing um, fight sequences and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So fencing, uh, I used to teach rock climbing, uh, freestyle rock climbing. Um, oh, wow. I taught wow. canoeing um, and uh, worked with uh, uh, YMCA and did canoe trips, um, two-week wow. trips. Um, one three-week trip. Huh. Uh, there is a teacher in you, I think, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, and I, and I have taught. Um, uh, there were a couple of archaeological work uh, field schools where I lectured for on lithics for the, for the class. Um, is that like rocks? And then, and then writing as well. Sorry? That means rocks, right? I mean, well, it's like a rock, yes. <laughs> Yeah. And you've taught, you've done writing workshops too, of course. Yeah. Yeah. He essentially gave one on chatting with nuts. Uh, many people have messaged me and said that I can't believe that was free. I said, I didn't, me either. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 my enthusiasm for, for the, for writing uh, takes over at that point. So uh, why would I, why would I want to charge anything for that? If I can, if I can spread that enthusiasm to just one other person out there, then I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, you definitely did that day. Yeah, definitely. good. Works for this, free. You definitely are a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And all the talks you've been having on AP's channel too, like the one about dialogue and. Mm, it's a gold uh, mine. Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, we have quite a few. Um, we're going to go through narrative structure basically. So we, we, we basically, we started with the most basic elements, uh, separating 
prose prose from from poetry yeah um yeah. and you know trying to recontext recontextualize that word because it's been overused uh, and quite often used wrongly um and then we went straight to well what you know what's prose made up of well it's exposition and dialogue and so uh we ended up having to split that so uh, our next one will be on exposition nice oh yeah yeah your conversation about that um i believe esamont was on for that as well uh really eye-opening as someone who reviews and i do always try to touch on prose and what i really meant to say all the all the while was style is really what i meant to say yeah yeah i think mostly it's style i think that's yeah. what people are meaning yeah well, Severian makes a good point here. Are, do you think you'd ever be tempted to uh, pull a uh, John Gardner or a Stephen King? Um, yeah, but I was, my thoughts on it, you know, I, I've been writing sort of essays about my archaeology days and um, quite biographic, autobiographical. Um, and I thought, can I actually blend that into a book on the, what I would call the ritual of writing? Because I, I view it as a ritual. Um, in every respect, anthropologically as a ritual as well. So I have had that in mind. And so, it, you know, if one's finished all the fiction, then I could probably start assembling that and, and put a book together. Is that the title going to be? Ritual yeah. Writing? Yeah. I love it. Oh, wow. Huh. Now somebody will steal it. You'll see. <laughs> you better copyright it right now. <laughs> yeah. Better well, watch out for Philip. He'll do anything to get published these days. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I did have a question about writing. Um, if if you were if you would be so kind to answer, and it sure. it pertains to like scope of whenever you're starting out. Do you think it is an error to go? all out and say like someone who wants to write a Malazan, right. Or something mm -hmm. major. Uh, do you feel like that is not the best place to start? Do, or, do you believe like follow your heart and write the story you really want to tell? Or do you think that there are building blocks that would help you succeed to that point? Well, you have to, you have to write the story you want to tell. Mm -hmm. Um, the scope that you apply to that, um, <laughs> may actually be yeah thanks thanks ap uh may actually be um more product of where you feel you're at as a writer mm -hmm. um because there can be nothing more discouraging than to start an, a massively ambitious project when you're not ready for it as a, yeah. as a writer craft wise um when i was um the first novel okay so this goes back to before i'm writing as ericsson um and I'm writing contemporary fiction. Uh, I published, what did I publish? I published a cycle of stories, um, so all interrelated. Um, and the book was called uh, A Ruin of Feathers. And then I published, um, I did a three-day novel contest and tied for first place on that. And so that was the, the second book. And then I did another collection of short fiction but the novel I had in mind was this coming of age novel called This River Awakens. And I think I started it in my last year uh, in the workshop here in Victoria, University of Victoria. Um, and I got about 250 pages in and realized I wasn't old enough to write it yet. Mm. Wow. Mm. And because there's a lot of autobiographical stuff in there, um, but I fictionalized a lot as well. 
Um, so I put it on the shelf. And um, it's one of those things where you look back and you think, well, could I have pushed through? Um, I mean, the book was originally, well, it was dedicated to my mother. And by putting it on the shelf, she never lived to see it. So you make these decisions and you then, you know, you look back and you think, well, could I have done this differently? But looking, looking back, you know, with reason and, and, and soberly, no, I could not. I could not have written it before I wrote it. Um, it would, um, I would, I probably would have failed at it uh, quite dramatically. And in many respects, maybe I did anyways, but when I finally got around to writing it, um, I got down on the page what I wanted. And, uh, and so sometimes the false starts are, you know, as an important lesson um, than anything else. And then years later, you know, I'd already had, actually, I'd already written Gardens of the Moon, but it was sitting on the shelf. It, it had come, gone to the publishers, been rejected. So this was like five years later. Uh, when I wrote *This River Awakens*, and we moved to England, and I found a publisher for it because it's set in Canada, which was exotic for the British uh, market. <laughs> um, and dusted off *Gardens of the Moon*, revised it, and because I had the agent at that point, I got *Gardens of the Moon* to him, and and he found a place for it. Um, I don't think I would have been ready to tackle a 10 book series without the experiences of all those short stories that I wrote and, and the writing of, and the failing of this river awakens. I think I needed all those things. Um, I needed to have those scars. I needed to carry that stuff uh, in order to, um, when given the chance, um, given the, the, the privilege of, you know, a nine book deal uh, after Gardens of the Moon. I just basically gave me a salary for uh, what turned out to be 10 years uh, to write this stuff. That was giving me permission to actually write it. And when I realized that, those, don't, those opportunities don't come very often. And you've got to take them. You've got to jump and um, go for it. Yeah. So. And that deal was monumental. I think that was like... It was. It was. It's a very unusual deal. Yeah. Yeah. People are always surprised when I tell them about it. Um, cause I, I don't think a lot of people know about the deal until they read about it on Wikipedia or whatever, but, um, I'm trying to think who called me. Um, was it financial times, something like that. Some really sort of major business new newspaper called me to interview me about it. And they wrote an article about it because it was um, unique in uh, publishing deals in terms of the terminology of it. Uh, I wasn't paid per manuscript. Um, I was paid on the assumption that I was going to produce one manuscript, one book a year. Yeah. But I was paid in four chunks as a salary. Very, very strange, never repeated. Um, but it, and it put pressure on me because I realized that um, these guys had made a major commitment uh, towards me and there was no way I was going to fuck that up. So I just, mm. I just bore down and started writing and memories of ice took a year longer than expected because we moved back to Canada in the middle of all that. 
and that kind of messed up my pacing. Um, but generally, I think I produce one a year. Sounds mm -hmm. like you had a great agent too to be able to uh, help get a deal like that. Well, no, no, he he was more surprised than I was. Oh, <laughs> no, it was um, it was a rival publisher, actually tried to to poach me uh, after oh, the first book. Huh. And so it was their offer, and then it was a question of whether um, Bantam UK would would match it. So the bidding war, yeah. Well, it wasn't really bidding. It's just were they going to match it? Um, oh. And you know, I broke the rules. I wasn't supposed to talk to my editor at all, but I phoned him and said, "Just get close. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to leave because this was the guy, and these were the publishers that took me the first time. The other ones had passed by on Gardens of the Moon." Um, and then when the book got popular was when they sort of said, oh, well, let's let's change our minds on this one. And uh, I did not want um, and apparently I didn't know enough about the, the industry, but that would have really screwed my reputation had I jumped. Hmm. Huh. Hmm. So I'm glad I didn't. Um, and I have no regrets there because I've been lucky enough to have that editor, Simon Taylor, uh, with me through the whole series to wow. this day, in fact. Wow. So I guess because you had that contract and that sort of momentum and sort of pressure, like you said, to keep going, um, I was curious about if you experience any sort of like lull or drop in energy when you complete a book or do you just keep going to the next thing? I just, I kept going. Mm. There was no lull. Um, I took a short break between book, between book nine and 10. I've told that story which was a bit of a mistake. Uh, I went to Mongolia. Yeah. Um, but then I, when I came back, I was raring to go. And um, I'd lost a lot of weight in Mongolia. So somebody said, well, just drink Guinness. So I started drinking Guinness. <laughs> and, and all the weight just showed up in one place, right? It's right down here on my belly. That's my <laughs> So that, that, that didn't work. But anyways, um, it is nutritious. I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. But anyways, then I wrote um, Crippled God, and it just, um, again, the momentum was there. But then I started slowing down towards the end of the Crippled God because I started getting worried that the scenes that had been in my head for 10, 15 years, uh, I wouldn't be able to pull off. And mm -hmm. um, so I had to, uh, things got more and more. I remember the scene where I realized how slow I was going. And that's the scene with Tavor and the um, Children of the Snake. Mm. And it's it's the scene where um, she has a particular line when she um, refers to her own blood being spilled. And it it took me, on that chapter, it probably took me a week to even get to that line. And that's mm -hmm. how carefully I was getting to that point. And then I realized, well, the rest of the book's going to be like this, isn't it? And it was. So it, it took a while. It took a while to um, make sure that I got to the the scenes that I had in my head, that I could get them down on the page the way I wanted them. Yeah. And then I, I took three weeks off, two weeks, two weeks, and started Forge of Darkness, which was a mistake. I needed a much bigger break. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't take it. Guinness is lovely stuff and no longer filtered through fish guts, so safe for Philip. <laughs> That's impressive, though, because, I mean, I know, like, it's very common to have a sort of 
for lack of a better way to put it, sort of postpartum experience. Mm -hmm. something mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it was, um, I had no idea uh, the burden I was carrying until I finished the book, uh, mm -hmm. Crippled God. Um, and the pressure that I'd been under for, for eight years, I really had no idea that it even existed. And it was manifesting, you know, physical ways, I'm sure. Um, but finishing and finishing up, I, I was in Falmouth in Cornwall um, in, in a uh, cafe just on the high street when I finished. And I remember stepping outside and just, I almost floated home. It was like, oh, wow. you know, everything had just lifted. Wow. And yeah, it was kind of, um, you know, when you say you're coming out of these books and your, your head space is, is. Yes. Yeah, I was like that yeah, mm -hmm. for a few days, I would think. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I finished one of your books, I would feel like almost like when you come out of a theater and it's mm. you're surprised it's either light or dark outside. Like, that's how I felt. <laughs> I think well, the first well, time I felt that way was with Memories of Ice when I came out of that. Like, what is happening? Well, then then you're channeling. Yeah, you're channeling my feelings. <laughs> the writing <laughs> the process, the actual process of writing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, PL had a question. What, what do you find is the most challenging thing about writing? Um, the most challenging thing about writing. I, I'm not, I don't struggle with writing. Um, I've, I've never had um, like writer's block. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I can even answer that. Um, I love it so much and I feel so privileged that I'm able to do this full time. Um, that every time I sit down to write, I, I just feel lucky um, that I can do it, um, that I'm allowed to do it. And so why would, why would that um, be problematic in any sense? No, I, I, don't, I can't really think of challenging in that respect. Wow. For me, it would be challenging, but I'm happy that it's not for you. <laughs> no. no, it's just so much fun. It's yeah. Um, yeah. such a pleasure. Um, you have so much, so much within your reach that you can, you can just put onto the page, pull yeah. down and put onto the page and see where it takes you. Um, yeah. And you know, as you're writing, it's whatever you've created has never been, never, it did not exist before you put it down on that, on that page. Yeah. It simply wasn't there anywhere in the universe. And That's so it's just so cool, right? Yeah. To be able to do that with the, with the hope and the expectation, well, it's more the hope these days, um, that you'll find a readership, that you find people who, who enjoy what you've done. Yeah. I used to write in journals all the time, mm. trying to get back into it. But I used mm. to like for years and years, all throughout my youth, I would just write and write and write every day, just about my life, my experiences. And it was always interesting to me because I'd always go back and read what I'd written after I'd finished writing. And it, it always ended up coming to a closure at the end without me even trying. There was just some sort of cadence that would come out and 
always thought that was interesting. Like, I guess part of me was trying to make sense of my life and putting some kind of narrative lens on it through writing. Yeah, well, we do that, don't we? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, we narrativize our lives. Absolutely. And we're always the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, yeah. At that time, I think that was kind of what got me away from journaling for a while is I realized I was in a way trying to manipulate my experience or my perception of myself by doing that. And so for a while there, I kind of felt like I needed to stop doing that just to break that a little bit to see what I'd see. But I am trying to kind of explore it again because it's mm. I think a really important sort of uh, exploration too. I mean, if it's a reflection of what's going on in your head, then you're already uh, reordering experiences, well, yeah. right? We all do it. Right. Yeah, uh, we revise we revise our memories and our stories. Um, although you know, it depends on I guess levels of one's honesty to the words mm -hmm. themselves. You know, mm -hmm. in terms of how much you want to revise, how much you need to revise. I mean, you know, experiences sometimes require you to do so. Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, favorite film, single film. Good grief. Um, <laughs> or a top five, even. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, let's see. I love Amadeus. Oh, that's, oh, that's a fantastic movie. Kind of, uh, Milos Forman, filmmaker. Um, I loved Ran, uh, Kurosawa, or Kurosawa. Um, Comedy, I would say Top Secret is probably the best comedy ever written. AP just wrote in the he, chat. He already he, he beat you to it, actually. Oh, that hoser. I it's brilliant. brilliant. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> I should it's, look it up. It's like an 80s comedy, isn't it? It's from the makers of Airplane. So oh. that kind of humor. Oh, okay. <laughs> I vaguely remember that title from a top what, list of airplanes. Movies. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really terrible when it comes to film. I'm so bad at knowing anything <laughs> when it comes to movies. I'm trying to remember. I thought, I mean, I saw Close Encounters of the Third Time in the cinema in, in Winnipeg. And that one just, I floated out of the, the cinema there. That wow. was wonderful. It was so optimistic. What a change, right? To have something optimistic for a change. <laughs> I know. Brilliant. <laughs> Um, I think Platoon is an extraordinary film. I know I've seen that probably multiple times, and I just can't think of what it. Think yeah. about it. I mean, I might say Apocalypse Now, but I watched it once, and I had no, I've had no desire to watch it again. Mm. So <laughs> that may, you know, it, it 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 was monumental in in what it was, but that's not good enough reason to actually go back and watch it second time at least for me um, what about you guys what are your favorite films <laughs> well uh i mean the default answer is lord of the rings just because like it's so monumental for my life um but from like a, from like an adult perspective i would say the wrestler by ofnowski uh with mickey rourke i think it's ofnar is that how you say it i don't know how to say his name um yeah, The Wrestler. It's phenomenal. Fantastic mm. movie. Um, there's a lot of truth in that movie. It's really good. Mm. It's a good one. 
Yeah, for me, yeah, I, I obviously Lord of the Rings too. I loved it, but um, a film that I think if you haven't seen it, Joanna, you should watch. That I love is called Tous les Matins du Monde. It's a French film, All the Mornings of the World. Jimmy's laughing at me. I'm just, you know, Philip always got something up his sleeve. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to check it out. Tous les Matins du Monde. It's about uh, these French Baroque composers, mm. uh, and it is just a movie that had me just trembling with emotion by the end of it. Uh, it's, it's a brilliant film. Uh, it, Gerard Depardieu is in it. Um, uh, and uh, he's a great actor. Uh, also another movie that I loved because I was a runner and maybe you'd relate Joanna because you are too, was Chariots of Fire. Oh yeah. <laughs> I heard oh, you yeah. say that once before. Oh man. Yeah. That, that mo- I had that movie in my head just about through my entire college years. It's every time I would go running. <laughs> <laughs> Music and everything, you know. Oh, yeah, Angelus was, was that's sort of where he made his name, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then he did stuff with John Anderson, uh, Friends of Mr. Cairo, which is one of my favorite albums. One of the, my favorite songs, actually. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic song. Yeah. I see that AP Canvin said uh, Dangerous Liaisons. Uh, he would say that. <laughs> I've never seen it, but I know he was talking about, I think, Cruel Intentions is the one that's the mm. modern or modern remake of that. Mm. I think that was the one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did see that one. Trade for, to Fire A. For what a about comedy, you? I would pick, sorry, for a comedy, I'd pick Friday with Ice Cube and Chris Tucker, which is probably, <laughs> Philip's never seen it, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's fantastic, though. I need to just start a film list so I could start watching a bunch of films I haven't seen because. I'm the worst. I really haven't watched anything. Yeah. In high school, oh, awesome. I watched the Good original moment. Star Wars trilogy over and over again. And it's <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, it's worth it. But Immortal Beloved is another one. It's a movie about Beethoven. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, it's brilliant. With uh, what's the actor's name? Oh, he's so good. Um, Gary? Is it? No, not. Oh gosh, I, I can't. Gary Oldman. Yes, Oldman? Gary Oldman. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. yeah. Very prolific. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know uh, some of you have early mornings tomorrow. I don't want to keep you too long. We want to respect your time. But before we go, uh, I wanted to ask Mr. Erickson a question. I like to ask all of all of my guests is, uh, I think you can learn a lot about someone from what their first job was. Uh, what was your first job? Um, bus boy. You learned something from that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what, what did What did you learn from that? Oh well, man. Um, I think everybody should actually have a job as uh, serving, serving, in a restaurant, uh, waiting tables, um, in a bar. Um, if you want a, an educational experience, uh, that's the place for it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I want to thank everyone for coming by, and of course, all of you for spending your Friday nights with me. I know you're all busy. I really appreciate you uh, coming by and spending some time with us. So, Jimmy, where can people find you if they want to connect with you? I would say just to get on here on YouTube, the Fantasy Network, and uh, you know, I, I do my thing over there. We have a lot of fun. I'd love to have you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Joanna, where can people find you? Well, my channel's name is Joanna. I know that's not very creative. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. But yeah, I can be found there. Yeah. I'm sorry, Philip. Go ahead. Oh, no. no, I'm just going to say you can find me at Philip Chase on YouTube. 
Yeah. Here's my crooked glass from Vegas. Oh, you bought oh, it. Hey. Yay. It's awesome. You can't find me at all. So that's no. okay. <laughs> yeah. can, can, can confirm. Yes. <laughs> so thanks again to everyone in the chat. And of course, again, to all of you for taking time out of your busy schedules to come and uh, kind of just shoot the breeze. So really appreciate it. So hope everyone has a great uh, weekend and we will talk to everyone soon. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Bye.